Welcome to Honorverse Today, the Honor Harrington podcast brought to you by TPE Network. Let's be about it. Hello there, Honorverse fans. This is Raul Wybera, and you are again listening to Honorverse Today. I am, as always, joined by my two good friends, Jim Arrowwood and J.P. Harvey. How are you guys tonight? Doing great. Outstanding. All right. I think we have got another rather thrill-packed, exciting, explosive episode for us tonight. Um... Jim, what book are we going to talk about tonight? Well, we're not going to talk about a book tonight. Whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. Then why are we here? Uh, Because we're joined by uh, Mr. David Weber. What? The the god of the honorverse. (laughs) (laughs) I'll go with creator, okay? All right, okay. Same thing, right? (laughs) Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. Yes, folks, we have the one and the only great maker, David Weber, here tonight. The one and thank God only. (laughs) That's all I can say, yes. And how are you this evening, sir? I am fine. It's been kind of a long, kind of wearing day, but overall, I'm good. Awesome. Awesome. Um, We have a whole lot of questions. We've actually got a few things from some of our uh, some of our listeners even to ask about. So, oh, how do we want to start this, gentlemen? Well, I guess it might be, I don't know, ask a question. Uh, well, how about that? <laughs> well, only if I we think, can follow it with an answer. I that think I want to awesome. start. <laughs> that would be I good. think I want to start with the one that I know from more than a few of our listeners that have uh, called into us. Um, Basically, and I almost tempted to let Jim ask this, but explain Murray the explainer. <laughs> now, th- this is just for for those who may not know that this has been something that folks have been teasing David about for decades now. It's some people say you should be focusing on the characters. Other people say, no, you should be focusing on the exposition of battles. Um, me, I've said this before. I like expositional writing. I think some of the my favorite Tolkien writing are his letters. But <laughs> yes, um, can you explain why? There are a couple of reasons. Um, what Jim refers to as Murray the Explainer is other places referred to as the infamous Weber info dump, <laughs> um, and there the, and they happen in the books. I acknowledge. Uh, <clears throat> usually, I think they don't get in the way. Upon occasion, they have. I can see that going back and and rereading. Um, but the reason that I do it is that I really am focused on the characters. And it's important to me that the readers have the full menu of the characters' options before them when they see what choices the characters make. And that's especially true in, say, a tactical situation. It, I don't want to just do a scene in which Honor says, fire now, and you don't understand why it's critical that she's firing now and not 15 minutes ago or 15 minutes from now. 
with the peeps in the early books, I had an unfair um, uh, advantage because they had these commissars who could not find their posteriors with both hands and approach radar where the Navy was concerned. So I had a built-in reason for the the long-suffering uh, citizen captain types to to explain to their their people's commissioner why no we can't do it that way unfortunately on the other side these guys knew what they were doing so there wasn't a good place to actually have uh honor explaining yes we're going to open fire at this range because so i chose to give that information to the reader either in narrative or an interior point of view where honor is considering her options before she makes her choice and i think that some readers really don't realize the extent to which having that information available however it's given to them enriches their understanding of what's happening uh on a reread I'm fine if they say, ooh, info dump, and just keep going to the next the next action point. And I try to do it in ways that aren't going to interrupt critical scenes, that aren't going to have uh, a, a, a huge slowing effect on the storyline. But to me, that exposition, that part of the world building, it's simply an element of my storytelling style. And one of the things that I think any successful writer has to be is he has to tell the stories the way that work for him, because if they don't work for him, they won't work for the reader. Mm -hmm. That seems that's really true if you're building, in fact, building a world. Mm -hmm. If you're just telling a story and it's done, yeah, you can get away with less, but you assembled a, a universe yeah, and you can have a lot of shallow universe or you can have some depth to it but, but. That, that that's part of it but if you read for example uh the apocalypse trope which uh was originally written in 1986 i think it was rewritten three times because i don't the soviet union collapsed and a few other things happened um but because that's very near future I don't have to explain a bunch of stuff to you about what's happening. And so the narrative, you know, it moves quickly. It doesn't have the built-in, I'm, show, I'm showing you a universe that you, this is the only contact you have with it, is what I'm telling you about it. Um, and I think that is one of the, one of the, uh, the reasons for the Honorverse's overall success. And it's also the reason that it's so big that you can write in corners of it that have nothing to do specifically directly with honor herself. Uh, I'm doing that with Tim Zahn. I'm doing that with Jane Linsgold. Um, there, I did it with Eric Flint, who of course we've, we've lost now. Um, and uh, there are other writers who've been invited into play as well. Okay. Uh, JP, actually you had something you were wanting to ask that actually is a perfect uh, fold into this. Sure. Um, so what events in your life brought you to the point that you've become the naval historian that you are? And and uh, related to that, I want to kind of do a shout out. We have a listener, um, Rhonda Tesh, who has asked the same question. I was a fifth grader. That's, <laughs> um, I, was, That's I, was a fifth I was a fifth grader when I discovered history. OK, um, I've always been fascinated by history. Um, 
I think it's in Lord Calvin of Otherwind that H.P. Uh, Piper is reflecting on one of Calvin Morrison's uh, professors uh, who said to him more or less that you can study all the history you want, but you have to study the military history because that's where the main decision points come. Hmm. That's where the punctuation points are. And that, unfortunately, I think actually is a very insightful statement. I don't know what specifically attracted me to naval history per se. I really don't. I've always been fascinated by ships. I've always been fascinated by the concept of the uh, the the thalassocracy, the the maritime power, and the cosmopolitan nature that's almost inherent in that. Simply because you go so many places, you you have contact with so many different cultures. Uh, I think that's one reason that continental cultures actually tend to be more, and I use this term advisedly, insular than island uh, uh, powers do because the island powers have to go beyond their borders and the continental powers, not so much. They just expand their borders mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and keep right, right on going. Um, so that was part of it. I've always been fascinated by military history. Uh, I have a lot of friends who are current or ex-military. The Navy recruiters in Greenville left notes to one another about me. Uh, because I had some issues that uh, they were they were not willing to uh, to take on back in the 70s, uh, some hearing issues. I have both migraine and seizural headaches, uh, a couple of other little minor things. They ultimately told me that if I came back with my master's degree, they'd give me a commission. But I had a strong suspicion that it was limited line that they were talking about. <laughs> yeah. And if I was going to be a bureaucrat, I could do that somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, kind of. One of my friends at, in graduate school was Marv Williamson, who was a three-star uh, in the Army Reserve, taught at Leavenworth every summer, and he helped organize the first exchange programs with the PRC. And he told me one time, he said, David, if they had let you in, you would have been had a brilliant career or they would have parted ways with you as quickly as possible. And I said, I said, why? And he said, that's the reason. I said, excuse me. He said, because you ask why. And he said, the military is happy with you if you go ahead and do it and then say, why did we do it that way when we could have done it better? They really hate people who say why. And then argue about it before you get ready to do it. And he said, and knowing you, I really, you know, it would have been a coin toss. <laughs> you know. uh, but uh, my brother-in-law was a Marine for 22 years. Uh, one of my dear friends uh, uh, was drafted for uh, the Korean War and liked it so much that he stayed in. He was in the class before one at Bragg. He was Special Forces his entire career. I had a lot of conversations with him. Um, a dear friend of my father's uh, was a Marine for, God, 30-plus years. Uh, he enlisted just in time to miss Guadalcanal and made every other first Marine operation of the Pacific War and got to march out from the Chosin Reservoir. Wow. Uh, so there's a lot of that kind of hands-on kind of, if you will, DNA, as well as my love in history that I think I, I try to bring. I remember something that Colonel Mack said to me one time, and I've said this at, at many conventions, so anybody out there who's already heard doesn't have to listen. But anyway, uh, Colonel Mack told me that the second worst moment in any combat commander's life is when the intelligence was good, the plan was good, 
Everybody rehearsed before it. Everybody executed almost flawlessly. Virtually all your objectives were attained, and a 19-year-old is bleeding out in your arms, and nothing you can do will put the life back into him. And I said, that's the second worst moment. He said, oh, yeah. I said, what's the worst? And he said, the worst is when you realize this is what you do best in all the world. Hmm. Yep. And it, it took me a while and a few Ooh. more conversations with him to kind of get behind that a little bit more because one of the things he was saying and i did not realize initially that i had grafted this into honor harrington's dna but it's definitely, it's definitely there. there yeah i'm thinking but of one, spots one where of the, you see her struggle with that thought yeah well but see one of the things that she, that is part of what drives her and it was part of what drove him too is they do it better than other people so if they let someone else do it it won't get done as well, and more people will die than have to. Mm -hmm. Okay? And that is a big part of what drives Honor Harrington, and I got that in no small part. It was illuminated for me by that conversation. Uh, it's One of the things I feel very strongly about in writing military science fiction is that you can't, you can't sanitize it. You can't write a, a story in which only the bad guys die. None of the characters who are really important to you as the reader die. That's porn. That's splatter porn. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it, I realized years ago when I was a history, uh, I taught, I taught, uh, four semesters of history in graduate school and loved it. I was going to be a history professor. Uh, and about the time I was finishing up my master's degree, I saw a study of the field that said that half the t tenured positions were held by people 40 or younger, and the field was shrinking at like 1%, 2% a year with people moving over to political science and whatnot. And we can see where yep. that led us today, just looking <laughs> at where we are politically. But anyway, my primary purpose objective when when i write is to tell a story that will pull the reader along okay that's the individual story that i'm talking about okay science fiction is science fiction is the fairy tales of a technic civilization mm -hmm. okay you don't have elves you don't have trolls you got cyborgs you got nanotech okay but it serves the same function that fairy tales served. It could be cautionary tales, it could be inspirational tales, it can be warning tales. There's, you know, it can serve that function in addition to being entertainment. Okay. I'm a historian. I love history. And I don't think you can really understand where you are if you don't understand where you've been. There's, you know, the Santana's aphorism of those who do not study history mm -hmm. are, are, uh, you know, forced to repeat it. Uh, then there's uh, Jimmy Breslin's people who people who refuse to study history are lucky if they get to report it instead of getting something worse. <laughs> okay, my my own version is people who do not study history are easily manipulated. All right. Do you and ever wish all you were of those a less correct? To, well, I've been wrong a time or three. Okay, uh, I, I remember. <laughs> okay. I had just left the grocery store with my twin daughters, Morgan and Megan, adopted from Cambodia. 
we brought them home when they were 15 months old. People have asked me, is Honor Harrington Eurasian because your daughters are from <laughs> Cambodia? And I say, Honor Harrington was born in 1991. They were born in 2001. No, mm -hmm. you know. But anyway, we, we left and this guy was coming. And I said something to him. I'd never met him. And the girls, they look at me and they're like, Dad, did you ever meet anybody that you didn't talk to? <laughs> and I said, sure. Back in 1973, I think, passed this guy on the street. Never said a word. Okay, well, that's me and history, too, okay, kind of thing. Um, but I have a political structure of belief my, of myself, an ideological belief. Everyone does. Uh, uh, yes, exactly. And any writer, the minute that he st starts to write, steps up onto a soapbox, whether he intends to or not, because what your views are, what your beliefs are, is going to infuse what you write. Even if you're deliberately setting out to be polemical or not, that's going to happen because the way you structure the good guys, the way you structure the bad guys is going to depend on your value system. Okay. And I'm not trying to lecture or beat anybody over the head. I mean, if you look, my liberals are, are, you know, they may be idiots who, you know, but they're sincere idiots in most cases. Okay. My, my conservative association. Oh my God. They'll get me started on them, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> the centrists are the, are the good guys in Manticore and they're not going to either, you know, extreme kind of thing. I was raised a pretty hard left Democrat in the 1960s, which means that probably I'm somewhere to the right of Attila the Hun today, you know, kind of thing because of the way the political environment in this country has, has evolved. Okay. But. But my fundamental values, my belief in the importance of human decency, the fact that, as Martin Luther King said, it's the content of your character that counts. Okay. Those haven't changed at all. Mm -hmm. They really have. Labels sure have, though. Well, but see, that's inevitable. Mm -hmm. It happens all the time. Like I say, I'm a historian, and this, this evolution happens. The U.S. is basically a centrist country. Although you might not guess it looking at what's going on, you know, in our political, I use the term loosely leadership, but you know, that that's who we are essentially. And if we could just stop fighting with each other long enough, we'd figure out that we want a lot of the same things. They're just being described differently. And because they're being described differently, we think they're different things. Okay. And that again is the perspective of a historian who has seen this happen. I've seen this show before. Mm -hmm. Okay, kind of thing. And that's one of the things that I try to do in the books. And as much as I have a political objective, I would say that is probably my primary political objective. That's why that's why there are that's one of the reasons there are as many good guys on the bad guys side as there are. Okay. But I will say this too. Do you ever listen to a good uh political uh uh rally song and notice that it doesn't have to make any sense at all that what it needs to do is to get Touch your emotions, emotions up and get you moving and whatnot okay well there's a variant of that that writers can do and that is if i create a character who you like who you empathize with and who is sane and i give them a perspective that you're not familiar with all right or even that you think you reject or even you do reject but this character who you empathize with gives you a different take on that. And you can listen to her living it in a way that having someone screaming it at you 
is not going to make it accessible to you at all. Okay. So if that kind of accessibility can be part of what I'm doing, I think that's a good mm-hmm. thing. I mean, ties. Okay. But it's not curve. my primary Tourville. goal. Boom. Right there. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is that I am, you may have noticed, uh, I like to build literary universes. Paul Anderson once described uh, universe building as therapy for uh, megalomaniacs. <laughs> I think perhaps he was overly negative in that definition, but but I do like to build universes. And if a universe is going to have a believable, workable human society in it, and if it's not going to be flat, two-dimensional, then it needs the texture of politics. It needs the texture of social issues. It needs the texture of of movement. And I happen to be one of those people who think that near-future science fiction is a really good place to deal overtly with current issues, mm-hmm. okay? But if you get out to honors time 2,000 years from now, I've said this many times before, to them, for example, the question of, of, of gender equality should have all the burning relevance that Pharaoh's policy towards the Hittites has to us. <laughs> okay, it's going to be a done deal one way or the yep. other. And one of the reasons, people, you know, people say, why do you write so many female protagonists? Okay, and I'm like, well, I like women. <laughs> I like strong human beings. I like strong women. But if you look, there's a lot of strong male characters mm-hmm. in there, too. I, but I think that somebody said, OK, when you decided to make Honor Harrington a woman, was that, you know, because you were all the way back in the 90s and the dark ages when women were still chained to their rolling pins? They weren't. You should have met my mother. But anyway, the you know, was that a deliberate statement on your part? And I said, no, it wasn't. You know, I just, from the moment I visualized the character, she was female. But thinking about it, I think from where I sit, taking Honor Harrington and having the fact that no one off Grayson has ever questioned whether or not the fact that she's a woman has any bearing at all on whether or not she should be an officer or a stead holder or anything else. Okay, to me, that's a really strong statement about where this whole ridiculous fight in the sandbox that we're having now is going to end. Whereas if you have someone dealing with that in a mainstream society 2000 years from now, you're shortchanging everybody involved, including women putting up with it and men being stupid enough to not let it Mm -hmm. change. Okay. Well, even your reader, even so, readers a, today reading the books, you, the the last thing you think about is that she's a woman because you're so yeah. invested in the character herself that. Well, I have to I have to say that one reason I built Grayson was to give a little bit of a different perspective on that. Mm-hmm. Okay, and to and to structure a society that was dealing with those changes, those questions even though we're 4,000 years in the future, okay? that's That was one of the reasons for the Graysons. Another reason was that I really wanted to get the doctrine of the test out there. To me, that's an important element of, of my thinking and who I am. But, yeah, it's... Somebody said to me one time, well, actually, more than once, but they said, they said, how do you write such strong, convincing female characters? And I said, I don't. I write strong, convincing characters who happen to be female. That's actually one of the questions. How do you do that? I'll give you an example. That's how I do that. Uh, 
Helen Zwicky, the mother, not the daughter. Yep. Helen Zwicky. Mm-hmm. She's around a few pages. And you get so invested in her that I, I, I've probably read that particular book four or five times, and it still brings tears to my eyes when she dies. Well, and I'll tell you something. The main reason it does that for a lot of people, okay, is Anton Zawicki's statement yep. to Helen Jr., okay? Are the peeps going to hurt mommy? Are the peeps going to get us? And he says, we're safe. Mommy made us safe, okay? And that's what punctuates who she was and what she did, all right? I'll be honest with you. People have asked me a lot of times how to make a character important to the reader in a brief, you know, in a really short period of time. And my response is that's not something I can analyze and tell you. It's just the way that it works for me when I'm doing it. Uh, I will tweak scenes like that for adjectives and adverbs and whatnot. But the, the, the structure of how you meet that character, how you become invested in that character, isn't something that I analyze. I just do it. And I have to tell you that one of the things that I think is critical is when you build the character, even if it's a character who's only going to be with you for a very brief period of time, if that character doesn't matter to you, you cannot make that character matter to the reader. Okay? And so, yes, I've killed a whole bunch of characters that I liked a lot, okay? And kind of like Honor, I carry all of them with me, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, uh, kind of thing. But I wrote, um, Chris Kennedy and I are writing a collaborative series. I did the original novel, Out of the Dark. It's for Tor, not Bane. Um, I did the original novel, Out of the Dark. And then it was like, I guess, close to 10 years before we got around to doing the sequel, which I wrote with, with Chris. And it was uh, one of the books that I wrote between the the um, the concussion and the COVID. Okay, so I hadn't really read it, you know, once it was done. And I was at a con, the first con I went to after the COVID, and they, I was going to do a reading, and I asked what, and they chose this. And so I'm reading the first chapter of this book, and it's the first time that I've read it aloud to anyone, and I almost couldn't get through it with my voice breaking, you know, because it's a father who is listening to his five-year-old daughter dying of pneumonia behind him in an encampment in, in, you know, cold, there's snow in the wind, you know, he's got this inadequate fire, they don't have housing, the aliens who have blown civilization to bits, you know, they're going to, he knows they're going to kill everybody, that he's losing his daughter, he's already lost his 17-year-old son, you know, the whole nine yards. And him having to figure out how he can try to be strong, you know, and all the rest of it. Man, I'm looking up saying, what did I do to this poor guy, you know, while I'm trying to read this, read this across? And I think it's a very effective chapter, but how it wound up being what it was, okay, I really don't know. Most of my, most of my chapters grow organically. Okay. They be, they have a beginning point and the chapter has a purpose, but I don't know what is going into that chapter until I actually write it. And that's in, in the early days of my writing career, the reason I wrote the book was to find out what happened. 
Okay. Yeah. Because I didn't know either. All right. It was kind of like, and I've had to, especially with the collaborations that I've done. And when the honorverse got really complex with all the message transmission time and whatnot, when you had to have detailed timelines, just to know when individual characters had information they needed to make decisions, then you had to start planning it out a lot more carefully. But, you know, it's still when when you can get in there and you can write a chapter and you can say, oh, my God, that's that's not bad, Dave. <laughs> when you get to the end of it, that feels good. It does feel good. This is a cool explanation for the it's almost maybe it is a cliche where you hear authors or readers say that they've heard that a character will start with some intent or purpose and they take on a life of their own. And your explanation of how that happens is the best one I've ever heard. Like, how does that happen? Well, here's what happens. I yeah, start a well, chapter. I'm, There's a reason that chapter is there, but I'm not trying to I'm not trying to manhandle the the story. I want the story to unfold and serve the purpose. And then it's neat that the author, you in this case, is is actually surprised at times by what happens. Well, there are you have to have a beginning point and an end point for the story, okay? And then you're working your way towards it. The other thing that is true is, okay, if I'm doing my job right and I'm writing a series, okay, then the characters in the series are growing and changing and constantly in the process of becoming. All right. But instead of me sitting there and saying, okay, what will this character do in this situation? Because I have internalized them as thoroughly as I have, I don't have to ask what they're going to do. If I give them a certain problem, a certain stimulus that they have to respond to, I know how they're going to respond because I know who they are. Uh, it's a question of understanding who the people you're writing about are. Mm -hmm. Okay. And if you understand that, then a lot of the character interaction and development takes care of itself. Okay. I know how Hamish Alexander is going to respond to something that Honor Harrington says. Okay. I know how I know how how Alistair McKeon begins his relationship with her and where they where they go. Okay. And I will say that one of the things that I did very deliberately in the first couple of books was I kind of by inference lied to you about who Honor Harrington was. Right. Because she was this calm person. She was sort of amused by the emotional entanglements going on about her, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I did that because I planned to peel that part of the onion in the next two books. And it was what kind of way of jump-starting character development for the reader. Yeah. Okay. Watching that happen. And by the time that had happened, then the character had had enough experiences in universe to grow with the reader for the reader to see what was happening in her current life rather than in her past life to make her who she was. And I, it's kind of the same way that I went out of my way to make everybody think it was the French revolution. When in fact it wasn't, I gave you the right. tennis court oath. Right, right, right. I gave you Rob S. Pierre. I'm like, watch this hand guys, watch this hand. Don't watch this one over here. And by the way, Esther McQueen's going to be Napoleon. Yup. 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 You know, and I had, I had Theisman planted as Cincinnatus from, from honor of the queen. And by the way, you guys don't know it yet. And this is not a giveaway from the books. I don't think, because I don't know that I've said it yet, but Alfredo, you, Okay was the was the guy who was in charge of the midshipman crews that Javier Giscard and Thomas Theismann were both on. 
Yeah. So he's kind of the common thread that ties those two together. We do. I don't. We do have it mentioned that he's their mentor, but it's, okay. Yeah. It's okay. not necessarily specified that it from the MIDI cruise. Yeah. Yeah, but he's the one who got them both interested in history. Huh. Okay. You know, it's like the first taste is free, then you're you're <laughs> lost. You know. Um, this yeah. this explanation t- actually ties back to what we were talking about just before. Um, just before, and it explains to me why a character like Helen Zolwicki, the mom, can appear yep. and disappear so fast. And it, and it, you felt, I felt, I think the three of us felt like we were gut punched. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, how does that happen in a character who is, you know, I, I didn't count. I'm not going to go back, but I'll just say paragraphs long, not pages mm-hmm. or, or chapters or books long. She comes it's because you, you learn about her and she's gone. Well, you mentioned caring about the character or the reader won't. Yeah. You mentioned these other things, and that's how a Helen Zawicki happens. It well, is certainly the other, how an Honor Harrington happens. Yeah. Well, the other thing about Helen Zilwicky the Elder is in the brief time that you know her, you're seeing the decisions she faces and the decisions that she makes define who she is in a way that my telling you who she is never could. It, and guys. You know, I gotta yes. say, uh, you, Jim, JP, you haven't gotten there yet, but in a very real way, she's not gone. As long as there's Ellen Jr. and Helen Jr. and there, as long as there's Helen Jr. and as long as there's Anton, that's right. You're gonna find out <laughs> yeah. she's she lives on. Yeah, she casts a long shadow in yeah. the lives of these of these characters. One of one the in. You guys haven't gotten to Shadow Saganami no, yet. No, not yet. No. Okay, then I won't tell you about <laughs> it. But I'm just going to say she does kind of, sort of, in a way, make a very brief appearance in someone else's memories. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, early on. And the other thing you get in that book, and I will, I will tell you this, it, it's a spoiler, but not a big one. You guys have already met the concept of the final view in the Honorverse. I've gotten around to, you know, it's Edward Saganami, you know, the tradition lives, the toast of the Navy. Okay. The opening of um, Shadow of Saganami, you actually see why that is so true for the Royal Manticoran Navy. Um, Speaking of gut punchers. It's it's almost, yeah, well, okay, that's true. What can I say? (laughs) Um, Hey, you know, it's what I do. It's what I do. Um, and, And sometimes... Sometimes, like I said, you know, the characters have to lose people they care about who are also characters that you care about for you to really understand the price that these people are paying, what this is costing them. One of the things, and, and I people look at me like I'm crazy when I say this initially, and then they kind of think about it. We talk a lot about what a violent culture we are and everything else. Okay, Americans in general have very little experience with violence compared to other people in other cultures today I wish more and other times more. in the past. They'd understand that. Well, yeah, my, my son is currently uh, a Marine in the embassy in Jerusalem. And so for the first time, he's getting eyes on with a state in an existential threat situation and what that means for police and their relationships with the people around them. And it's a, been a real shock for him Mm -hmm. okay and he's a historian too but it's still 
you know, took him by surprise. But one of the things that is true is that most Americans form their actual judgment of things like violence, like the military, like war, vicariously. They form them through what they read, through the movies that they see, which usually get that wrong, uh, through the news that they hear, which even more often gets it wrong. Okay. And one of the functions that I see for my books, and I, I'm not trying to be pretentious and say this is why I wrote them or anything else, but one of my responsibilities, let's say, as a writer of military science fiction is to try to make the actual cost clear to people who haven't been there, haven't done that, haven't seen that, so that they don't too blithely assume that we should do it again. Mm -hmm. Okay. The folks that I have known who have been most opposed to, to, to military conflict and who have, who have on, on a reasoned rational basis rather than a, ooh, military bad basis are people who have been there and done it. Okay. They, I, they don't want to go back. They don't want to take other 19 year olds to bleed out in their arms doing it. Mm -hmm. And they understand that one of the, one of the things that can be absolutely guaranteed is that in any war, you're going to have situations like in Ukraine right now, where it's civilians in the path of the fury, where, where civilians are going to be killed, children are going to be killed, and the people who are there and see this are going to be scarred by it and have to live with it forever. And so that's kind of... You know, in, in a sense, because we've got starships throwing missiles at each other and whatnot, that's not that big an issue in the books that you guys have read so yet. far. That's all I have to say about that. But well, we have seen at least one incident where a significant portion of a populace is affected by a political slash military decision. Yeah. In well, I'm, and yeah, well, I'm, I'm talking here about actual, well, okay. Yeah, I guess with the levelers and with with uh, Sanju's mm -hmm. little little St boom boom. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's you know that's, but that's actually that's actually almost in passing compared to some of the stuff you'll get to deal with later on. They're going to see. Know. They're going to see some of it fairly this. soon. I'm, I'm thinking the last story of Service of the Sword, for example. Mm, yeah, that's that's true. That one that one was that one was hard for me to write. But I have to tell you that uh, the captain of 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 uh, of her ship um, is one of my He's, favorite uh, I characters. Love the, in the entire I love series. the guy. I absolutely. You got all right. This, you this two, is a stop teasing. Gentleman. These are teasers. Stop teasing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I see. I wasn't going to tell you who he was. I didn't. The, drop the name's not going to mean here, anything though until know. they read the story. Yes. So I'm not. I'm not yes. afraid there. But I. I will. I will tell you that he is he is one of my favorite characters in the entire series, even though when you meet him, you will hate him. <laughs> <laughs> uh. It's kind of like it's kind of like at the beginning of Honor the Queen. I got all these readers who hate the Graysons. They're, ah, they're such terrible people. Yeah. And by the end of the book, they're saying, you go, Grayson, you go, Grayson, That's because right. mm -hmm. they've seen inside them at that point. Right. And I think that's one of the things that good storytelling does. Well, that's not good storytelling. Okay. That's is just it... being a good person and take the time to see inside the people. It's one of the things well, that I true. take with that's my true. job. With my job, as part of my basic fundamental philosophy, le leadership is always personal. You, you've got to take the time mm -hmm. to get into the person, and your yeah. writing reflects that. I think that's true. Well, and I think also if you give if you give the reader a 
this is how everybody sees these people. And the reader's like, oh, well, that must be the way they are. And then you start getting behind it. Okay. I think that it has an even greater impact on the reader mm-hmm. when you begin kind of unfolding and unpacking the, 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 what was actually behind the preconceptions that were wrong because they were preconceptions and preconceptions are always wrong to a greater or lesser degree. They go from being a cartoon to being a, a person. Yeah. And, and by exactly. the way, in the real world, you, you, if you know somebody, you know a person, not just who they are, mm-hmm. who you disagree with, it's pretty hard to hate them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You may it not is. like them and you may not agree with them, but it's hard to hate. And I think you're, yeah. you do an incredible job with that, taking the people who should be the bad people. And while they may be the bad people, they're not something that you just hate with raw because they're they're not one dimensional or two dimensional. These are there's a backstory. Um, and now I now I have a problem. I'm, I'll speak for the readers, right? I have a problem <laughs> because I understand and have some respect for the people that I absolutely don't like. <laughs> yeah, that's, 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 that's the right. real world. Yeah. Um, just like come, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I don't want to drag us back to a prior conversation. I'll highlight something though. You you told us how you introduced us to honor. And, and we were there, we saw it, we read it. You get honor essentially presented uh, as a lie because you don't know how, where did this honor come from? You get that, you get that later. And uh, isn't that the, that also is the real world though? Yeah. Yeah. You meet somebody who shows up new in the office. You meet somebody at the gym. You meet somebody at church. You meet, all you know is what you know, and it's not a lot. And if this person becomes a friend, you discover this rich past that they carry. That you didn't know about. Yeah, whether it's amazing baggage or horrible baggage, Mm -hmm. and a a much fuller person appears. Uh, Well, there's there's also this, and this, again, is something that I've said many times. Nobody has ever read a single book I've written. What they have read is a book that I wrote from their starting point. Right. Okay? Honor is a different person to every single reader of an honor Harrington novel. Okay. Because you're as much involved in the DNA of that character as I am. I can open the character to you, but how you perceive her, how you understand her is going to be different because of where you came from. My own baggage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And, and it's kind of like people said, well, you know what you wrote, you know, it inspired me this it inspired me the other. And I say, well, you know, I'm glad. I said, but I couldn't have inspired you to do something if what you're doing hadn't already been inherent in who you are. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think that, I think that that too is one of the functions of good storytelling, uh, is to help us understand ourselves in the characters that we are learning to understand in the story. And it's also why I loathe, loathe dystopian uh, fiction and especially dystopian YA. Mm-hmm. I think dystopian YA is poison, and and I'm sorry, but that's a very strong view of mine. Yeah. And that's why the Star Kingdom novels, which you haven't read yet, uh, are are written the way that they're written. Mm. That I don't think that constitutes yeah. a spoiler. No. no. Yeah. Okay. So Raul, actually, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I read these books that you've written. And others have contributed to, and there is so much there. Uh, one of the things that helped, helped me to kind of sort things out was something I learned from JP called dime. 
Mm-hmm. You're familiar with that. Oh, yes. Do you do all of the research, political, economic, military, um, informational, do you do all this research yourself, or do you have like a warehouse full of people with computers that you just call up and say, hey, I need you to find this out for me, go to work? How do you how do you know all this? Okay, this is going to sound a little strange, Okay. I do research on specific points, specific hardware, specific, you know, I will go back and say, let's see, I think, let me, yeah, let's go back and look at the Battle of Sedan again. What was his name? You know, that kind of thing. I don't do other, I don't do research otherwise. Okay. This is, these books, I wrote the first ones when I was, let's see, I wrote them in 91. So I would have been 39. Okay. I had been studying history and and loving history since i was 12 all right so there were 20 almost 30 years worth of my love for military history the fact that i had taught history the you know all the rest of that that was wrapped up in it all right <laughs> you're familiar with norman friedman mm-hmm. <laughs> okay design history okay that's my idea of entertaining reading Okay, I have all of his design history books, and I, by God, read them. Okay, and I wasn't doing research. I was just reading. Okay, so in that that's what I'm saying here, is when I read Clausewitz, it wasn't research for me. It was, you know, I've heard a lot about this guy. Let me read it. And I have to admit, there were parts of it when I'm going through and saying, what the hell? <laughs> you know, but the, when you bear in mind the fact that he died before he got a chance to do the final edit, you know, it makes a little more sense. At least it, it's not uh, Sun Tzu. I, I saw a a uh, marvelous, marvelous description of Sun Tzu just a couple of days ago that says that he wrote on war and the entire thing could be, could have been titled, as I said in my previous email, <laughs> to get this across to these guys who should have been paying attention. Okay. So, so Clausewitz actually, I think has more to tell us than Sun Tzu. All right. I mean, Sun Tzu is, he's, he's big into aphorisms, you know, and all that kind of thing. And, and so it's, so is Clausewitz, but then Clausewitz kind of raises the hood and tells you exhaustively, almost a David Weber style info dump, <laughs> what's going on under the hood. So I've, you know, I read Clausewitz when I was, God, 10th grade, I think. Okay. I haven't been back and read him again since I've kind of bopped in and out. So, you know, in terms of, you know, remembering exactly what comes where, which is the first quality and the second quality, the third quality, you know, kind of thing that gets a little, little vague. To be fair, Uh, you read it, you tab the parts that, because it's not a novel, right? As you know, No, it's not. It's not. Oh, and you know, that would be an example of where I would do research. If I decided I was going to specifically cite CrossFits, I'd go in and I'd, I do a, a scan to make sure a skim to make sure that I had my points, my chickens, you know, the, as my mom would say, my pigs and chickens in a row, you know, and, and got everything nailed down. But that's, uh, I mean, you know, I, when, when, you know, a lot of people don't realize that HMS dreadnought was not actually the first dreadnought laid down. Okay. That the American South Carolina class actually predates dreadnought in, in terms of design and, and lay down date, but because of the difference in construction times, 
Okay, Dreadnought finished first. So she's the one who gave her name to the entire class. You know, I came across that in, I think, the seventh or the eighth grade. And I said, that's really cool, you know, especially when you think about the fact that the American ships actually had a much more logical layout of their armament, but they didn't have turbines because we couldn't really build turbines in the U.S. at that point. But there's another thing. And, okay, just as one of those interesting little factoids that you become a, a familiar with, aware of when you're doing history, the U.S. Navy was slower than European navies to adopt turbines for their capital ships. There were several reasons for that, but one was that the U.S. design philosophy said we'll probably have to sail across, sail across a freaking ocean and then back again to fight the battle. And reciprocating engines had much greater cruising fuel efficiency than turbines did before geared turbines became available. Geared turbines burned through, un, uh, sorry, ungeared turbines just burned through the fuel. Europeans were willing and the Brits were willing to accept them because they had coaling stations all over the world. The U.S. didn't have that. So they stuck with the reciprocating engine longer because it gave them a greater cruising radius and they needed that. Well, you know, that's in the back of my brain when I'm designing warships in, in the Honorverse. Yeah, you just explained okay, that Grace, kind of stuff. You just explained Grayson versus Manticore in uh, shipbuilding. Yeah, in, in 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 a lot of ways, and then the Grace, then the Manticore uh, learns from Grayson. Mm -hmm. Okay, that Grayson shipbuilding is much less efficient on a ship for ship basis, but because you can have so many more ships simultaneously under construction, it's more efficient for building a navy, assuming you have the funds and the personnel to <laughs> throw at it. Yeah, and the will. Okay, yeah, and that's the kind of of you know when you study military history you get that kind of trade-off i remember reading once somebody was talking about u.s navy design decisions after pearl harbor and why the battleship suddenly got pushed off to the side well the main reason was that we didn't have enough armor plate manufacturing capacity to, to push them through but the other one was money wasn't a problem okay you could get the money for almost anything you wanted to build the problem was allocation of steel so what are we going to build that we need worst? And right this minute, because of our agreement with Great Britain, we need escorts in the in, in the Atlantic. And because we're planning on fighting a two-ocean war that nobody else in history has ever been able to do, we need to be building the, the, the assault uh, vessels and whatnot for the Pacific campaign simultaneously. And, oh, while we're at it, let's build 30 Essex-class aircraft carriers and 300 uh, es escort, uh, not escort, fleet carriers and 300 escort carriers. And, oh, what the hell, let's build two or, two or 400 destroyers at the same time. Okay. You really and truly, when you start looking at the 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 ratio between industrial power and the ability to to project military power if you haven't studied the history you miss the fact that world war ii was won in detroit okay there's right a on. there's yeah there's a book uh how the how the war was won i cannot remember the author but it looks specifically at the 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 logistics behind the Allied victory in, in World War II, and specifically the U.S. contribution to those logistics. There are a couple of conclusions that he reaches in there about um, how critical given battles and so forth were that I'm, yeah, maybe, maybe not, you know, kind of thing. But by and large, he absolutely nails it. 
And I have no idea how we went down that rabbit hole, but you're welcome. (laughs) This is a rabbit hole, especially with you and JP on the same call. Keep in mind, the the man used to teach this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Got to be a little careful here, you know. Uh, No, you don't. Which is just fine, because I'll tell you what, the best interviews are where, where you ask your guest a question, and then you just shut up and listen. And you for a learn. half hour, and that's great. <laughs> well, I don't know about learning, but trust me, you ask me a question, you'll have plenty to listen to. <laughs> Sharon has has mentioned that many okay. times. I, yeah. I do have to ask one. Th- I do have to have to ask something, and this kind of drifts back to some of the philosoph- philosophical perspectives that you were talking about before. Yeah. yeah. How do you? How? And th- this is for the guys coming up. Uh, they're, they're not quite there yet, but it's an important question. So I'm I'm just going to ask you. You're going to get me into spoiler I, trouble no, he, here. Is what you're going to do? I think you do. can do it with. I think you can answer it and avoid spoilers. If not, tell me and we'll just move on. Mm. <laughs> how do you mesh your yeah. writing? We'll with blame your, Raul anyway. It's all right. How do you mesh your yeah. writing with Eric Flint, uh, whose position is so much the opposite of yours? One of the things that I see, I love, it's I not. love the Crown of Slaves. It's not. It's not. I know where you're going to go. Okay, we're going to the same place. We want the same thing in a lot of ways. Yeah. Okay. Victor Kasha. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is one of my favorite characters. Now, okay, my problem working with Eric, okay, is okay, let's take an example from the 1632 universe. Okay, he has a character in there, Julie, who was uh 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 biathlon competitor for the for the olympics and now she's back in 1632 with the west virginia town that's been moved back in its entirety and she takes a shot at like god 1200 meters okay standing okay with free yeah with her rifle she takes this shot and it would be a perfect headshot, except that Metternich moves, so it just hits him in the jaw, you know, at and, and, meters. And, and tears it apart at 1,200 meters. And I, I had a friend who was at Thunder Ranch at the time, and he read the book, and he said, David, I, I said, yeah. He said, he said, I love Eric. Now, this was not in one of my books. If it had been one of my books, we'd already had this conversation, you understand. Uh, but he, he said, David, I said, yes. He said, I really love Eric's writing. Yeah. He said, but tell him God couldn't have made that shot <laughs> under those circumstances. Okay. And I said, yeah, well, yeah, you know, kind of thing. That it can be a problem, for, was a problem for you. Uh, the other thing about Eric, God love him. Eric was a perfect, perfect exemplar of Clark's law that any sufficiently mm-hmm. advanced technology is indistinguishable yep. from magic. And for him, computers were indistinguishable from magic. He had no clue <laughs> how they worked, but he kept writing about brilliant hackers. <laughs> and you're going, oh, you can't get there from okay, here. That, that, you know, is, hi, that is him writing that those parts in Crowns of Slaves. Oh, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> well, no, it, it's also, it's me sometimes trying to kind of rein him in a little bit, and other times and just sort of throwing my hands up and say, I'm going to let Eric be Eric. About the interplay it's between like, it's, the two of you. Okay, okay, okay. When Eric decided that he wanted to have the repair part for the hyper generator turned on a lathe, <laughs> I'm like, oh no freaking way is this going to happen, you know, but he really wanted it. So I finally said, okay, fine. 
That's what, how we're going to do it in this case. And it'll be the only hypergenerator in the entire galaxy where you can, you know, turn the part on a lathe. I had to, in, 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 to end in fire. That was a significant problem was what he had done with cybernetics in there. And I'm not going to tell you, you know, what we did and why, because that would be a spoiler. We'll have to get you back what on I will someday say, and you can explain that then. <laughs> well, but what I will say is that one of my functions, one of the things that I had to do in rewriting the book was get to the same place in a way that worked for plot purposes. All right. And sometimes that required a whole lot more ingenuity than it would have required if I'd been starting from a clean sheet of paper. But it worked. And in essence, I think it actually made the book stronger in a lot of ways. You know, what you just described could probably be true on any of the, any, any of the Crown of Slave books. Gentlemen, I'm going to tell you right oh, now, absolutely. You, you can tell when... You can tell when Eric's writing, and you can tell when David's writing. And you might be surprised. I might be. Okay. You might be surprised about some of the passages oh, involved. We, we definitely have to have a yes. further conversation at some point because um, I one of the things that looked like is the interplay between you two, and it's part of what makes those books so much fun. Oh, it's definite. That's definitely a huge part of what makes the books work. But for example, Eric and mine attitude towards genetic slavery. Identical. identical our attitude I expect that our attitude towards our attitude towards the unknown ballroom oh actually you guys have already met yes they met? they have read yes. they, okay they you've met the autobahn ballroom They've okay met... well you will eventually find out that honor harrington has a very personal reason to hate manpower a very personal reason um and that she's one of those people who is like Audubon Ballroom has has uh, information for me. Sure, sit down, tell me about it. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Where the Star King Manticore is still. You realize the Audubon Ballroom is technically a terrorist organization. It's on our list of terrorist organizations, Captain. And Honor is like, so. This will make sense. They're already seeing this laid down. They're, they've started. I think I, I know JP has. They've started uh, War of Honor. Yeah, but until they get to Beauty and the Beast, they won't, they won't really understand, understand what's it. going yeah. on. I, I've got yeah. a ton of questions about that book, but I, or about that short, but I am not going to ask any of them because it definitely. Mm. It, it well, I will say this: one day I will write the novel that tells about Alfred's what's going on in Alfred. There. Oh, good! You you just answered one of the questions yes. I would ask. Yes, and see, I did it without a spoiler, guys. Y'all are teasing well, yes, Encouragement. <laughs> this is encouragement to go on. Um, okay, Jim, do you want to go ahead and let, let's get some of the get, let's get some of the listener questions while we're we're at it, and then we can go ahead and just let it, the conversation meander as it is because we did I did put some questions out, and I know Jim did as far as getting some input from uh, listeners, and I know Rhonda has already been reflected on it. Uh, Jim, you want to grab a few? Sure. Um, we have we have just a few questions from fans and i'm gonna start i'm gonna go backwards from what we haven't written uh jacob don't pa i guess that's how it's pronounced asks will there ever be an honorverse video game uh thinking uh galactica deadlock you and knew this question was going to come David, right or a tv yeah. series you've probably been asked this a million times yeah 
Well, okay, we were working on uh, a movie project a few years back, um, and Evergreen Studios that was working on it uh, basically went bankrupt and the project dropped. Part of the problem there was that they wanted to do it as movies, and they wanted to start with Basilisk Station. I love Basilisk Station. In many respects, it's one of my favorite books in the entire series. And and that's true for a lot of readers, even though if you look at it, there's very little action in the first two-thirds of that book. Mm-hmm. It's all character. It's all character, every bit of it, even when I'm giving them problems. One of my favorite, favorite lines in, in the book, and it was, one of, it was Colonel Mack's favorite line in any of the books, was when Honor says, the drones were your responsibility, Mr. Cardones. Deal with it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he said, he said, yes, 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 yes. Okay. But that is not what movies are built of. Okay. And so all the action in that one is really loaded, backloaded into the last third or so of the book where you get, you know, tremendous combat scenes. And so my feeling was that if we were going to do it as a movie, we should start either with uh, Ms. Midshipwoman Harrington Ooh. or one that you guys haven't read yet, um, Let's Dance, which immediately precedes Honor's uh, advanced tactical course yep. stint. Okay, start in one of those two places or start with Honor of the Queen. And I actually, this is, this is how I visualized the movie beginning. Okay, you run... The title, you know, boom, boom. And then this, you haven't read, you haven't run any really of the opening credits, just, you know, Honor Harrington, blah, blah. Okay. And then the screen goes black and it stays that way just long enough for the viewer to know that it's gone black on purpose. And then you are suddenly in the heart of the battle against the Q ship. Okay. You got explosions. You got Honor saying, Mr. McKeon, get below. You got Harkness transferring missiles. You've got Dominica Santos dying when she, when she mm-hmm. blows the, you know, and, and all of this stuff is just happening, just happening, 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 kaleidoscope. And then Honor takes the shot and the Q, but you see this Q ship just thundering away. You get a chance to see the relative size of the combatants. And then Honor takes the shot and you have this huge explosion. And then Honor sits up in bed. And Nimitz hops down and he's standing on her lap and he's got a hand on her cheek and he's like looking at her and she says, sorry, 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 didn't mean to drag you into that. He kind of nods and she says, but it's getting better. And he shakes his head and she says, well, it's getting less frequent anyway. And he kind of thinks about that for a minute. Then he nods. Okay. So she gets up. Why does that sound She goes into the head. She walks past her dress uniform laid out on a chair. She splashes water in her face, and then she starts putting on her uniform. And the the credits are rolling in the middle. Of, uh, uh, you know, Nimitz hands her her beret. She puts it on. She leaves her quarters, and she goes straight into the meeting with Corvassier, briefing her for Grayson. Okay, you don't have a clue who all these people yeah. you saw in this chaotic dream sequence were, but when you start seeing some of them later, you know they've been to Helen back with her already once. And when the peeps start talking about the unarmed merchant ship that she blew away, you've seen the damn unarmed mm-hmm. merchant ship and you know what it is. Okay. If you're going to do movies, to me, that was the way to begin. If you didn't want to do the, the, the young honor, if you will. My considered opinion, however, is that the honorverse would work much better for TV uh, with an ensemble cast. And I probably would start with uh let's dance in that case which like i say you haven't seen uh but i will say that it involves honor 
it involves honor basically tossing her career into the into the ash can before she's ever completed atc she makes a decision that she knows will end her career and it doesn't kind of thing but use that for the the pilot episode okay and then the series begins with her graduating from atc that you saw her going to at the end of the pilot and then you're into basilisk station if you have an entire season to work with to see all the relationships and whatnot. Then you build to that climax at the end of the season with the battle against the Q ship, you know, and you end with her in the space dock, looking at what's left of, of the old fearless kind of thing. And you end with her saying, yes, I'd be delighted to address the board kind of thing <laughs> at, at the end of it. And that's your, that's your launch to the next season. Okay. To me, and, and you can rotate characters in and out. Uh, as the series goes along kind of thing. To me, that would be the ideal platform for it. Um, and there probably will never be a video game of it unless and until there's a television or an anime deal for it. Because anime would be another place I was actually gonna where ask this could that. be would done Would you consider and done doing well, it as an animated series instead of a live action? I'm thinking... Well, actually, Wars. Uh, Mutant, Mutineer's... Mutineer's Moon is currently being pitched as an anime station, oh. anime series in Japan. Oh, 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 uh, oh and the problem oh. there is that there's there's the problem is there's not enough Japanese readership for the series. So what we are looking at now is arranging and and I haven't got an update on this in the last several weeks, but the idea is uh to release the books in manga format in Japan to build readership to support a Japanese anime that would then build out from there to a, to an American version as the well. The Dayhack series is what and got I think, me into Honor Harrington. Well, if I think if that works, then I think there would be a lot more interest in doing the Honorverse in the same type of format. You see what mm -hmm. I'm saying? So, you know, we'll see what happens there. I'm not holding my breath on it. Uh, most projects like this do not come to fruition, but it would be really cool, uh, I think, if this one did. And and let's face it, uh, Dahak and uh, the Apocalypse Troll both are, you know, anime fodder. I mean, you know, they would work perfectly. Although I think that if I were going to make a movie of a David Weber book, okay, I would probably go with the troll, okay? Or uh, in Fury Born, and visualize in Fury Born as two movies: the original Path of the Fury, which is the second half of that book, and the prequel that I've added to it so that it could be bound in one set of hard covers for people who wanted a hardcover version of it. Th those would be where that's where I would go for movies of my stuff because those are the books that are neatly packed enough together to make a satisfactory movie as opposed to a TV series. See, one of the things that, that I feel about fandom is, for years and years and years, everybody said, we got to have a Dune movie. We got to have a Dune movie, right? Yeah. And Lynch, David Lynch, got in there and he made a movie that was going to be very, very, very long and then cut it down. And it didn't work. Okay. No, it didn't. Uh, now, I'm thankful for that movie because it made me read Dune. Yeah. Now we have Denny Villeneuve who has made Dune and it is hugely popular. 
Yeah. Because it was in, it would be impossible to get all of the detail that Frank Herbert had into into a movie or even two you movies. You can't do it. No. You can't do it. It's actually remarkable to me that Peter Jackson's uh, cinematic cuts of his movies worked as well as they did. Mm. The expanded versions are are even yeah. better. Now, nobody that I know has seen that those those the first three movies and not said, "Man, he really pissed me off because." But at the end of that, all of them say, "But God, I love the movies." <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, uh, my problem my problems are mostly in the middle movie with implications for the third when uh, when Mary uh, uh, tricks uh, Fangorn into realizing that Saruman's gone bad. You know, in the books, Treebeard mm-hmm. knows from the get-go, okay? And uh, when Saruman is killed in the movie, so that you never have the, you know, the scouring of the Shire or any... Scouring yeah. of the Shire could have uh, been a movie and, of its own, though. Well, scouring of the Shire is why Tolkien wrote the damn book. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I mean, if you look, if you look at who he was, and you look at it... Now, and I understand Jackson's decision not to go there. I disagree with it, but I understand it. Okay, but that's what you get into when you have a really big, sprawling universe that you're trying to do justice to. And that kind of describes the Honor Harrington books pretty well. Well, You would not be able to fit all of Murray, the explainer, into a movie. It's just (laughs) not. And so that's true. So without that, how are you going to know what's going on or be able to tell what direction you're going or, or be able to tell what? what things are, how things work. So, well, you're, you're going to do it. You're going to do it by, by visiting with her in the crusher. Ah. <laughs> you know, she's got a tactical problem to solve. Okay. <laughs> you're going to do it with a, with a, a, a simulation uh, with the, with the midshipmen or the junior officers where honor then critiques them afterwards said, you do remember that the missiles have an actual powered range yeah. of light. <laughs> what were you thinking? <laughs> you, know, you know, that kind of thing would be how you'd have to do it. Um, and because you've got the visual imagery to support it, it would actually work a lot better than just on the printed page where you don't have, you know, but one of the things that would would be, I think, critical to doing the universe properly, you can't have the ships that are fighting each other in frame together. Like in you know, Star Trek, you we have a range of five hundred thousand kilometers. Don't open fire till visual range. <laughs> Why not? Because we can't get the <laughs> shot. You know, um, you know, and so like the 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 way that uh, that um, Evergreen was visualizing the missile exchange. Okay, is you're in the ship, you got all the chatter, everything else, the missiles fire, and then you follow the missiles, and there's no sound at all as these salvos cross. And then as they come into attack range, all of a sudden you're inside the target vessel and you're dealing with the point defense. You got all the chatter, everything, then they start exploding and whatnot. And that gives you the feel of the sheer range at which these battles are fought. Um, It would have been great. Yeah. All right. Raul pointed, uh, but, Raul pointed that out, which I thought was kind of neat that it takes, okay, fire missiles. All right, let's go for lunch now because nothing's going to happen for the next. Oh, yeah. <laughs> trust me, it gets worse. <laughs> it gets oh, worse. God. In, yeah. in good ways I, and in bad ways. Steve okay. Jackson once uh, was at a con with me uh, and he said, 
thank you, thank you for the for the Honor Harrington books. And the uh, and I said, I said, why? He said, because the technology changes. <laughs> 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 and and you know, and that and that's that's true. It does. You know, mm-hmm. that's one of the things that to me is particularly since. 1914 at the very latest it's it's an inescapable aspect of war threat drives response and response becomes a new threat that then has to be dealt with and when you're actually shooting each other that process is hugely compressed mm-hmm. uh in the this name is of one survival. of the things i really liked about war of honor in fact mm. well war of honor i've i've always war of honor is kind of a transition book in a lot of ways. You guys have done War of Honor now? I have. We're in it now. Uh, JP okay. is reading it. I don't know how far Jim has gotten. Okay. Well, all I will say is that uh, two things. One is War of Honor is the one book in the series that did not get a final edit. And it didn't because there were multiple projects in and Simon & Schuster moved the release date up. The book would be thirty to 40,000 words shorter if I'd gotten in there to do the final edit that would have done. There's not a lot in there that doesn't need to be there, but some of it's there more than it needs to be there, if you follow what I'm yeah. saying. I but it marks do. a hugely transitional stage in who Honor Harrington is and 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 what she does, what her what her role becomes. And it's also the point at which High Ridge is perhaps the most loathsome Manticoran character of all, <laughs> even counting Pavel Young into the mix. Yeah. And if you guys, Raul has received a I've manuscript, okay, uh, which basically goes back and revisits that time period. And one of the things it does, JP, is that when I wrote the original dueling protocols, okay, I had them flipped. All right, that shot that Honor does from the hip. Mm-hmm. I decided I wanted to do to take the shot from the hip. Okay, and I have a friend I taught to shoot. Yeah. Okay, who point shooting can roll a damn. Well, I haven't seen him in years. Can roll a damn half gallon uh, gallon milk jug with gravel in the bottom, with six shots from a forty four Red Hawk. Yeah, and just he's on it every time, and he can't hit squat with a rifle. He's exactly okay? the opposite because he doesn't understand sights. He he doesn't understand sights, okay, but he understands point and shoot. And he's kind of who I had in mind for being yeah, honor at this. Awesome. Although honor honor does understand shot. Yeah. Anyway, um, but originally the duel was supposed to be fought at 40 meters. And I'm like, well, that, you know, I'm gonna have her fire from the hip. Okay, so I'll have to reduce the range. Okay, I that didn't get done in the final edit. So in the manuscript that uh Raul has now, I fixed that. And there's actually an author's note on it that says, you know what, this was, yeah, 40 meters is a bit much even for Honor Harrington firing from the hip. I mean, you know, uh, but uh, I think uh, it's 20 meters um, in, in, the, in the revamped version. And then the, the, the Dreyfus protocol, you start at 40 meters and you fire the first shot and then you advance and then you advance yeah. and then you advance and see and i i flipped those so anyway i just thought i'd mention yeah, that that's cool you know, while we're and, here but, and, and honestly i thought the way that the what i'll call the current protocol is described is there's not an expectation that anyone's going to land a shot in the no. first few volleys it's no. as the drama increases and the space <laughs> closes yeah, the, but see, but but see, that's that's the that's the protocol where either side can declare that they're done. Satisfied. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. 
yeah, uh, you'll see. You'll see when you get there oh, that you know I'm that, that, that they're this. fixed. This will be good. Yeah, and another reason that I wrote the book is that okay. So you guys have done um, Honor Among Enemies. Oh yeah. So you know that Horace Harkness got married. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Well, one thing you will find in this book is the courtship of Horace Harkness, <laughs> sort of. Awesome. <laughs> uh, but what, what the main, and a lot of the reason that I wrote wrote it the way that I wrote it is there are a lot of readers I think who haven't really totally internalized the fact that if not for High Ridge and the opposition, Stark Kingdom Manticore would have won the war in the first eighteen months. It would have been over. Mm-hmm. Because at that point, the, 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 the peep Navy still, I mean, it was in disarray, you know, the whole nine yards. And that delay is what cost all the lives that were lost after mm-hmm. that. And that was a point that I was making in the book. But I think people got caught up in the yeah. drama of honor and the duel and sort of missed that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was another reason why I went back to, to revisit it. Neat. Anyway. Ah. Carolyn Morgan yeah. asks... What happens to Grayson wives when their husbands die? Do they remarry? Are they still they a can. family or do they get support? Uh, well, that's one of the neat things about Grayson is there are very large extended families. Okay. Um, and there's uh, there are societal mechanisms built in, in which the extended family steps in to help support. And also, you know, Grayson women have been more involved in doing a lot of the management and running of Grayson generally than a lot of people realize looking in from the outside through the books originally. Okay. I mean, they're, they've been doing, I mean, I think, um, I think Mayhew's uh, wife makes the point uh, early on that they've been doing things that they're just not credentialed for. But, you know, if, if you think it's easy to do some of this stuff, you know, you need another, you need to take another look at it. Uh, they can remarry. Okay. The problem being that there are insufficient males, you know, to go around, uh, given that uh, in Grayson, there's not an absolute prohibition on having more than three wives at a time, but that is the expectation. That's, that's, that's the model. It's not unusual for a stead holder if someone dies in his service, okay? And I don't think this ever ever actually happened in a book, but it's part of the the background of Grayson kicking around in my brain. There's a passage in which honor, oh crap, this is teaser, (laughs) a spoiler. Okay, okay, I'll just say this. I'll just say this. Honor exercises one of the prerogatives of a stead holder when she tells the widows of a character in the books that they are now her family. Mm -hmm. Okay. As the stead holder, she becomes in effect, the head of their family, which has been truncated by the loss of this, this person. All right. Uh, And stead holders have traditionally done that throughout Grayson. And that's where a lot of, for example, their most trusted retainers and whatnot have come from over the years is that they're actually members of the stead holders extended family even though they're not in the succession and never will. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Right. That's one of the mechanisms that's baked into grace and society. And don't forget father church. Okay. Because father church, one of, one of father church's responsibilities. Now father church isn't perfect uh, about that, but that's partly because there, the information flow isn't always perfect. Mm -hmm. You know, where is the need? Uh, Joel Presby has actually written um, three or four short stories 
that look at that aspect in regards to one particular family that's kind of fallen through the cracks. Interesting. Okay. I've got to ask. This is, and I, I, I brought this up to the guys when we first talked about Grayson. I've studied a lot of Old Testament history. I've, I've actually studied it formally in, at university. Um, yeah. All right. A lot of people, when they see the Graysons, they make the obvious connection. Grayson's Mormon or Grayson's Americana. Yeah, I can see what you borrowed in from that as well. But one of the things that I've I'm seen, and I don't know if it was intentional or not, and this is what I'm wanting to ask: was it intentional or not? Is there's such a strong parallel to the Abrahamic journey and the children of Isaac and the children of Ishmael, especially when you pull in the Masadan component? Mm-hmm. Was that planned, or did it just evolve that way? It wasn't planned, but I saw it evolving. Does that make sense? That happens a lot with me. Uh, okay, I'll be doing things, and I'll realize. Fast forward. I'm not going to tell you guys where this is. Okay, I killed a character in a book. I tried four times, five times to write the book without killing the character, and it didn't work. And I didn't know why. I didn't know why until I turned the book in. Okay, and the reason was that to get you inside the head of one of the main characters who had just suffered suffered this huge loss of, of family and friends and whatnot, devastating to the character. But you had never met them. But you did know how much this character I had killed meant to that character. And so that mm-hmm. character's death became the window into the grief and the trauma that this person was feeling over everybody else. And I didn't realize until after I had turned the book in that that was why I had to kill this particular character, that I couldn't couldn't get get the get the character out of it alive, no matter how hard I tried. But I didn't know that until I handed the book in. That happens to me. I won't say frequently, but it does happen to me. I go and say, oh, that's why that wouldn't work for me. OK, now you have to understand that I did this pretty large tech Bible before I began. And the Tech Bible has entries in all different colors of typeface that have been added from later books. It's kind of like a coral reef, <laughs> okay, that, that keeps getting new layers, you know, uh, accreted onto it. Um, in the short fiction, um, I generally, when I invite an author in, I say, what story would you like to write? Okay, and they tell me. And I say, huh. And I say, okay, what you need to know about background for the story that you want to write is this, this, and this. And by the way, here's the tech Bible you can look at for other stuff if you want to. Go away and write the story. They go away and write the story. I don't look over their shoulder while they're doing it, okay? And then they bring it in, and unless it's going to create a problem with canon, I'm a lot pickier about that in the later anthologies than I was in the early anthologies. Uh, Unless it's going to create a problem with canon, then I'm good with it. And if they come up with something that I hadn't thought about that's really cool, that's great. And it gets added to canon and becomes part of the honorverse going forward. And that has worked. Now, by the way, Jane Linskold and Queen's Gambit, do you know why she was why she wrote that story? Why? She she was the first person who ever came up to me and said, 
was Roger assassinated? <laughs> and I said, wow. why, yes, he was. Why don't you go write that go story? Right. Yeah. <laughs> she just gave yeah, herself you know. a homework assignment. Yeah, you know, now go home and write that story. Uh, yeah, that, that's pretty much uh, Have you ever done it that, that, that way before, happened. as well as, you know, take something out of your, uh, out of the writer's Bible that you wanted addressed in a short format and kind of doled it out to? I've never, hand, I've never handed it to someone. Okay, sometimes they've had a story concept, and I've said, "Ah, well, let me tell you about this," and then they go and 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 they incorporate it into the story. But no, I, you know, it, it kind of actually works the other way more often. Is that they think of something that I hadn't thought of that is fits naturally mm-hmm. into into the world that I'm building, and it gets incorporated into it. I mean, you know, people have to realize that the first Honor Harrington novel was written like two years before Al Gore invented the internet. Right. Okay. I mean, you know, there was, there was, there was, you know, I, and I actually, when you look at it, I did pretty well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's another thing. Okay. Okay. This is a personal, personal bet noir of mine. You know, they say, oh, we can, we can build missiles now that are smarter than the ones in the Honorverse that need all these links and everything else. And I'm like, okay, you have to look at this, the complexity of the tactical environment, the fact that there's a limit, especially because of the wedges as to what the missiles can actually see, the sophistication of the electronic warfare and everything else. The missiles are basically, they're a dispersed array. Their sensors are feeding back to the computers aboard ship that can then extrapolate, can can refine for the follow-on missiles. That's how the how the loop works in in the early days. Now, missiles become somewhat more sophisticated mm-hmm. in the course of the book. They're still going to give you their best results as long as the ship is in the loop and combining all of this input, but there are other factors involved, but I had all these people that are like, oh, you're, 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 Weber clearly doesn't understand this. Weber clearly doesn't understand. I say, well, actually, the problem is that you idiots don't understand what's going I, honestly, on. Honestly, I've always thought about the missile warfare more in lines of submarine torpedo warfare in a lot of ways. Well, that be well, except for the density of the salvos, yeah. and that becomes even more. Now there is a weapon which is introduced, but we don't have multi-kilometer-long subs either. Well, that's true. Uh, but what I was going to say is there is a weapon which is introduced um, in one of the books that you have read, which is actually called a torpedo and which actually, with its launching vessel, is a much better analogy for submarine warfare. Oh, yeah. But we won't tell we won't we won't tell Jim and JP any more than that. They'll, you'll recognize it when it comes around. Okay. All right. So our last uh, question from our listener, Brian Ugly. Brian, I I don't think that's his actual name unless he made that up. <laughs> Brian Ugly asks, does the Monarch's Own have its own logistics and combat support, or does it rely on the regular army? Now, I don't recall learning anything about the monarchs own the the, the the monarchs own is the um elizabeth's there, there's yeah it could there consists of a battalion from each of the star kingdom's home planets there's the copper wall battalion is from sphinx i can't remember off the top of my head what the griffin and the manticore battalions are but they are essentially the the personal guard of the of the 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 monarch um they are essentially army troops. They're not Marines. 
Okay. Uh, and they are essentially exactly what they are described as being. They are the monarch's own bodyguard and personal combat force. They are responsible. One of the reasons they're as big as they are is they're responsible for a whole lot of vulnerable points that are, they're distinct from the, 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 the palace security detail. Okay. For example, um, the Colonel who you, who you haven't met yet, Colonel Shema, Seamus, excuse me, uh, who you meet later on in the books. Uh, she's, um, I think I would have to go back and look for sure, but I don't think she's from the protector zone. I think she's from the PSG. I'd have to check. To she is PSG. Sure. They've met her uh, at the uh, party. Oh, okay. Yeah. When, 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 um, when, um, Nimitz, uh, uh, signs. when Elizabeth mm-hmm. turns up in grace and garb. Yep. Yes. Yes. I love Okay. That and she's too. not real. She's never real happy about, about armed armsmen, you know, in the monarch's presence, but she gets over it, you know, kind of thing. Uh, now she's going to have an even bigger problem when some other people turn up armed later on, but we won't talk <laughs> about that right now. Um, oh, you know, it's like she, she really had some adjusting to do there, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, so I, I, you know, I've never really sat down and detailed what their logistics train would look like. Okay. I'm assuming that they are essentially, uh, army units who are specifically organized from individual planets and who are then assigned to service um, as as the monarch's own, and they draw their logistics from the Royal Manticoran Army because they are basically army units assigned to a specific duty. So I hope that that's the best answer I can give right now. You know, I may okay. someday write a novel and say, that'd be really cooler if, but, you know, as long as I haven't nailed it down in the book, I can, I can say, oh, it'd be cooler if, and go there. All right. Well, that's all our our listener questions. JP? For the well, moment. Yeah. <laughs> there was a question that you had brought up once that uh-huh. so many people have asked in the past. I, I'm, sure, I'm sure he's answered it before, but it might be worth asking again. I think it's number six on our list. Yeah. So we know that you originally thought that the series would be five to eight books, and that obviously changed. <laughs> yeah. Um, regardless of what you're intended, um, regardless, I guess what my question is, is what, who, not what, who was your intended audience when you set out to write the series originally? And did that intended audience change as the series took on its own life and really grew past five to eight novels? Okay. Good storytellers, in my opinion, don't write to a specific audience. They write a specific story and a good story finds its audience. Okay. So instead of deciding that I was going to write for this particular group over here, there is a little bit more of that in writing the YAs. Mm -hmm. Okay. But not a whole lot. Heinlein was right about how you write a YA. Okay. You write it exactly the way that, well, except that nowadays part of what he's going to say here, you'll recognize it when it comes around is ignored. You write it exactly the same way that you would write it for an adult and leave out the cussing and the sex. Right. Why are you being young adult? Young adult, yes. And so that's why the Star Kingdom novels are written the way that they're written. And by the way, young adults don't have any problems at all with those books. Neither do adults who read them. So I didn't really write them for a specific audience. Uh, I wrote them to tell a specific story. Now, 
from the get-go when I was planning on killing Honor off, okay, for me, the books were never solely about Honor Harrington. They were about the universe in which Honor Harrington lived. They were about the most destructive war in galactic history. They were about the forces that were involved. And Honor was the lens through which you gained access to everything that was going on. She was also a character who I hoped readers would care about as much as I did. Okay, And her life story is a huge part of what's going on. But that's why I envisioned her as dying and the story continuing down later later threads okay mm-hmm. and it's yeah. also one reason why i expected that it was going to be the link that it was going to be now when i say that i expected the original series to be five to eight books i mean that i expected it to go five to eight books before her death at which point the 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 arc which follows right. her not dying uh comes into play you guys you're doing War of They're Honor doing now. War of Honor now. They haven't read okay. uh, Crown of Slaves or Saganami Island yet. And uh, they haven't read At All Costs. No. Yeah. yeah I, at All Costs was a hard book to write. But <clears throat> that's the one in which Honor was supposed to die. But in one of your die. appendices and uh, the earlier books, you did mention, you have mentioned that she would have died at all costs. Yeah. So that's not, yeah. that's not necessarily that she would She would have died there. I will tell you that. There is a very important character who does die in that book, and I flipped their deaths when I wrote the book. And yeah, the character who, who uh, Honor finds out what happened to the other character exactly the way the other character would have found out what happened to Honor in my original yeah. original view. And it hits the reader right between the eyes when it happens. Oh, God, yeah. Okay, and it, I knew it was going to be like a high-risk move to kill her off. Um, but when Eric um, and from the Highlands came along and then we did Crown the Slaves, it was just too much stuff got pulled forward. There wasn't enough time for me to kill Honor off and let her kids, well, yeah, she hasn't had those yet, has yeah, she, but- uh, grow up to, 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 to take up the, the, the burden. If, if you will, yeah. um, and there are that there and there that did create some problems for me, uh, because there's two or three books there where I'm still kind of shoving stuff around, trying to figure out how to get from honors not dead to where I needed to be. Um, in the end, I got to exactly where I wanted to be, except that the character who is who would have uh, delivered um, honors my favorite speech that honor delivers in the entire book uh, would have been uh, her son or daughter. Okay. Yeah. But I, I, trust me, I am not at all sorry that honor Harrington didn't die. Okay. <laughs> we? um, be, We're okay but, with it too. So it's well, the right. character, the character became really, really important to me. Yeah. Okay. Not just as a boy, I like telling stories about this person, but for one of any other way to put it as an individual and a friend. Okay. And I would have unhesitatingly have killed her. Uh, there would not have been a dry eye in the house. Uh, she would have been trapped on her command deck, um, critically wounded her, in, and they can't get pressure in. They can't take her out of her vac suit. And the last thing she ever would have said is, tell the queen, for God's sake, let it end here. And that would have been how the initial, how the conflict between and it doesn't work that way because she didn't right. die. But the book would have ended with a scene in Dempsey's 
on Hephaestus. And the big display is up and word of honor's death comes down and the silence just spreads across the restaurant. They can't believe it. Okay. And then someone stands up in the back of the restaurant and raises his wine glass and says, ladies and gentlemen, I give you the immortal memory Boom, and that would have been the end of the book. And for those of us who know Horatio Nelson, mm-hmm. okay. Anybody who missed the fact that she had a ship named Nike, right? <laughs> and, and regardless, the readers would have hated you mm. because they have to wait now to see what happens. Like, what do you mean she's yeah. dead? Now, now you have to wait two how years. How is it possible? <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, I, and I got I got to say I expected there I've killed some characters off that I really expected readers to be hugely pissed with me for killing. Okay, I haven't gotten that reaction. I've gotten char- people who were sad that they had lost a character who they who they really really liked. There are there's there's one thing that happens in my books very rarely but it does happen and that's you lose someone suddenly without warning okay there's no foreshadowing that this person is going to die um and that's because it happens that way and all the right story needs, uh, right. steve white yeah well steve white was an intelligence officer with Nair group on the america during the vietnam war and he told me he said you know the worst thing of all was he'd brief these guys you know in the morning they'd carry out the mission and six of them would be missing uh for dinner and you didn't even know how one of the intruders had gone down. Okay. They just weren't there. Yeah. All right. Um, and that's one of the things that people need to understand happens in a war, just like they need to understand that good people get killed too. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that, that um, gives me goosebumps that you're saying that for all the right reasons. I, I think, uh, I don't know if you've read masters of the air, uh, which there's a, a companion, there's a follow-on, a companion series to Band of Brothers that's being done right now mm-hmm. to capture what happened really to the, the 100th bomb group in Europe in World War yeah. II. And the bloody 100th, yeah. I'm, yes, I'm bringing that up because that the that book captured what you just said very well about the impact on the the airmen who all launched in the morning, Group 1, come back and don't necessarily know, they know there were losses and they know who some of those losses were, but they don't necessarily know all the losses yeah. they discover. Their roommate, their their best friend, whoever didn't make it back. Yeah. Uh, and then the other group being the folks who didn't fly either that day or didn't fly at all. Yeah. The ground person, the ground personnel. The come back and the rest are yeah. gone. And uh, okay. he, he did a great job in that. History, it's My, a history, right? Of uh, that. Okay, that problem. there are there are quite a few war movies that I have liked. Most of them are Trek. There are quite a few that I have liked, and for my money, absolutely the number one movie for the war in the air in Europe in World War II is Twelve O'clock High. Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. With Gregory my, Peck. Also, my favorite. Yeah. And that when he can't pull himself into the bomber for that last mission, when he finally breaks, okay, and they and they have to basically they almost carry him to the control tower and he just sits there yeah. until they start coming back. Okay. To me, that was and I'll tell you somebody else who his own life as an example is Jimmy Stewart. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you look at, if you look at him and then you look at him after he came back, there's a harder, sharper edge to him and a lot of his post World War II movies. Um, and I think that it's because he, he had PTSD. Yes. Okay. And how the hell could he then. not have it? They didn't know yeah, what to exactly. name it back then. Yeah. But that was a thing. Well, I'm, I'm sure you've read the book on killing. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, I think, I think, you know, it, it absolutely puts a finger on, you know, one of the reasons that 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 they that we didn't see as much after World War II as we did during Vietnam of the veteran who was adrift, who was disturbed, yeah. was that they were coming back by ship in a unit. They were having that time to decompress with one another instead of getting on a plane in Da Nang and getting off right. in San Francisco. And later today or tomorrow morning, they're home. Yes. And, and that's why, you know, okay, when we're bringing them home from desert storm, when we're bringing them home, okay, you're on base, you're not going anywhere for at least a month while we keep an eye on you and help you decompress. We've learned a lot about the human toll of combat. Uh, but I think even today, people who haven't actually seen it or haven't actually dealt with people who have seen it, who have, who are dealing with it really don't have, when I was in graduate school, I was driving from Greenville, from, from Boone, North Carolina to Greenville, South Carolina, through the mountains, two-lane highway, uh, rainy, foggy, uh, very early spring, late winter. You know, I was driving a 12-foot Dodge Tradesman van because you could afford to buy gas for it then. Um, and basically, I was working three days a week in Greenville while I was going to graduate school in mm-hmm. Boone for the rest of the time. Okay. So I'm driving down and there's this guy behind me who obviously is unhappy about the speed that I'm going on a road that I drive twice a week, you know, and in the visibility, there's no way that I'm going to be going as fast as he wants to go. So he's doing the kind of flashing his lights and everything else. There's a stretch where there's an extra lane in the highway that was put in, I think, for the pulpwood trucks back in the day. And he went shooting around me on it. And I said to myself, I'll see you again further down the road. And unfortunately, I was right. Uh, he took, uh, there was a, uh, a sapling, a, a tree maybe this big around at the top of one of the embankments and the root ball had cut, it was dead. The root ball had broken loose in the freeze and the thaw and it was lying pointing up the road and he took it through the windshield. Mm. It decapitated him. Yeah. His wife was dying in the front seat when I got there and he had a two-year-old and a six-year-old in the back seat. This is pre-cell phone. This is, you know, and so, you know, and that there was a, there were other cars that came along. It wasn't me all by myself, but it was a two door and you could hear the, the gas flowing over the, the engine compartment. And the only way to get the kids out was to take the wife out and she's horribly hurt. She's dying, you know, kind of, but we had to remove her to get the kids out. And I got this two year old in a death lock around my neck. Okay. She's got her face buried on me. She's not moving. Somebody is like this pre-cell phone. So it's like, I saw a light back there. I'll go call the EMTs got there in remarkably good time for the circumstances, but the, 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 the wife was gone when they got there and they told us, they said, you did not kill her moving her. If we'd gotten here in 15 minutes, we probably wouldn't have been able to save her. They couldn't get the two-year-old to let go. And they weren't going to, you know, trank her. Right. So I rode in the ambulance to the hospital and somebody, one of the cops drove my van in behind me and they find, and then somebody had to call this asshole's father-in-law and tell him that he just killed his wife and widowed his grandchildren, you know, kind yeah. of thing. So I was like, okay, you know, I, I, I got to go on now. So I went out and I got in my van 
and I was driving along and I realized oh, my peak jacket has my pea coat has blood all over it. You know, I should probably stop and clean up. So I pulled into this rest stop and I'm going in and this grandmother and her kid are coming along and kind of, Ooh, you know, around the other <laughs> side. And I said, Oh, you know, so I went on into the restroom with my, with my little duffel bag, you know, and I changed. And when I opened the door to came out, I was looking down the muzzles of a pair of 12 gauges because she had called the highway patrol and said, I just saw this guy covered with blood. I started laughing. I could not stop laughing. And fortunately, they did not decide that I was a homicidal maniac, but I, I yeah. finally managed to get out. They called it in and everything was confirmed. One of those cops sat on a bench with me in the rain in late February for 45 minutes before he let me get back into my van to drive the rest of the way home. Okay, I've carried that with me ever since. It took me a long time to realize how angry I was at the driver of that car, not just for what he'd done to his wife and his kids, but for what he'd done to me Right, coming along, dealing with the aftermath of this. And that does leak over into how I approach this in the books. I don't say that the same elements wouldn't be there if this hadn't happened. But there is a degree to which having seen that, having been there and dealt with it, yeah. helps me to understand how somebody who's looking down at the body of a 19-year-old who's dying and they can't do anything about it, okay, why that hits them the way that it hits them. Okay, well, you, th Those are scenes, this kind of loss in that case that obviously you write from the head and it's very well, but those are scenes that are informed by the heart. And even if, I don't know how it's, how it is what it is, but I'm going to make this observation. Somehow that comes through to a reader. Yes. In the form of realism, that wasn't just a great description of a horrible thing. There's something different about it when there's, when there's an experience behind it. Yeah. Um, well, I, I so, was at a panel with um, David Feintuck. And you guys, I don't know if you've seen uh, Seaforth Hope. But yeah. Anyway, he did uh, a half dozen novels i think that were kind of you know but he and i were on a panel together and he got really angry uh because uh there was another guy on the panel whose last name was houseman and who oh, said you know i have a bone to pick with you <laughs> he was a really nice guy and if you go and look at the safe hold books you will find that one of the primary wonderful characters in the book his last name is houseman but anyway <laughs> we were we were talking about writing you know combat and uh, Hausman, who had seen combat, he's not a writer himself, but what he was at that point was an advisor to people who wrote military fiction. He, he'd worked with Clancy and some of the other, mm -hmm. you know, guys. And Feintuck got really upset because he said, you're telling me that I'm not allowed to write military science fiction if I haven't actually <laughs> witnessed this kind of, of stuff. And we said, no, we're not telling you. Well, that's what it sounds like, yeah. you know, kind of thing. And we're like, no, that's not what we're telling you at all. You know, but I think it's not that you have to have experienced it, but you have to be able to open it to the reader who hasn't experienced it. Right. Right. Okay. And I've had a couple, I've had a couple of vets who have said, you know, I, I really had trouble with this particular part of your book because it brought back stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said, and, and I remember one of them said, you know, I, I, I was really struggling to read that, that scene. And I got to the other end and saw how the character involved had handled it. And he said, that actually helped. Okay. And I said, well, I'm glad. I wish I could claim credit for that. 
okay, but I'm glad that that it helped. But like I say, you know, when you consider how little experience most Americans have yeah. with this kind of stuff, I couldn't justify to myself writing a book that should have, that didn't yeah. deal honestly with this. Now, there are some people who, I can't possibly write combat as bad as it is, so I'll write it as bad as I possibly can. Yeah. Okay, and one of the problems with that is it's overkill. The reader numbs out, and it loses it the impact that they want to to attain to achieve, and that's why I tend to to hit you squarely between the eyes with occasional scenes, occasional episodes where this happens, rather than in every single battle dealing with the dismembered bodies in the compartment after it took the hit. You know what I'm saying? Do you, because you have painted a fantastic. Again, this is my opinion. I'm not going to speak for anybody else but you have painted we've commented on this in the podcast um I, I think a wonderful picture talking about accuracy and the heaviness and the weight of combat in the scenes that you have described it's not something you can just gloss over and go what a cool battle it might have been a cool yeah. battle like legit but that that there's a price and and mm-hmm. that's one of the things that has um spoken to me the most in the stories is that you don't build up to this awesome epic you know the the big bad fight in space and it's dramatic and it's star wars and you know some people got hurt and then we move on no it's it, it is the ugliness is there and which is well, interesting too because it gives you a you're now fighting a mix of emotions the the fascinating and amazing and intricate battle at the same time it's horrible and but that's well, i have to say that's a great picture well, of the real world one one of the reasons I don't know I'm sure that you have because one of the other things people complain about is the character lists in a Weber novel. Okay, that's real. There world. are very few unnamed characters in a David Weber novel. Okay, I'm not going to have a character who's going to be the lieutenant seventeen times. Right. Okay. If that character is going to be in there, that character is going to have a name. Not only is he going to have a name, but in my character list, there's going to be a brief physical description. There's probably going to be some little quirk about him that I'm I'm putting in there. And that's because I don't want those characters to just be mannequins when they get lost. I don't want them to be nameless victims. And the other thing is it gives me a really deep bench if you go back and look. For example, Anton Zilwicky. Mm-hmm. Okay, he appeared in that one scene in 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 that novel, and then yeah. later on he became a critically important character going forward. There are several others that 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 happened with, and if you'll notice, when you meet them again, they've aged and changed. Their lives have gone on. Things have happened since the last time you saw them. Uh, for example, you will encounter Ginger Lewis from honor among enemies again awesome. and you'll also encounter wanderman who is no longer the you <laughs> oh, know yep. the the new kid on the block yeah. you know kind of thing um the one thing that i do kind of regret about the way that i structure the books is that you see so little of the below decks portion mm-hmm. of of the navy and it's because of the way that the books shake down in the battles and whatnot yeah, um yeah. But that's one reason why I wrote um, uh, Service of the Sword. Okay, and you get a because, glimpse of that. And yes, you do see a little exactly. more of the below decks when you start dealing with yeah. the lax. 
and the lacrus. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Especially a especially HMS Cutthroat, where the entire crew had been present when I was humiliated in a spades game <laughs> and gloated over my humiliation <laughs> when I was set on the three of clubs on a nil bid. Okay, the three of clubs on a kneel bid, and they and and one of the people, the guy who did it, waltzed around the room at the con, chanting, "I set Weber on the three of clubs." I set, and so oh their vessel was destroyed with all hands by a freak hit that no one could have predicted. There's nothing vindictive about. Uh-huh. Me. <laughs> right. I've got to ask a future of oh, the Jessica Epps. The Jessica Epps that got lost in honor of the in um no you okay no, sorry, no, don't talk about yet. Jessica sorry, yet sorry. no 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 but but when you get there oh, never mind yep. never mind I won't say I won't say yes future right. looking question um and I think this can be done without any spo- I know this can be done without any spoilers to end in fire huh. you're clearly it's like you're shifting to Act Three of what's being a three act play Th- that's the feeling I I mm. got do you have a definite end game in mind and uh yes yes i do uh probably okay if if i hadn't lost eric uh it probably would have been maybe two more books now how exactly it ends no i i i know where it goes but how it concludes once i get there is another another story raul trying to avoid spoilers yeah, I know. I put you in a hard spot. Okay, well, wait a minute. Okay, they don't. They've never met this character, so O'Hanrahan. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Her attitude towards her erstwhile bosses uh, is critical to how the the storyline finally shakes out. Um, and so are the two folks uh, on Darius. Okay. Uh, if you know who I'm talking yes. about, there. And Jim and JP, I've yeah. got to. I've got to say now, I. I for the people who've been reading the books, this is an important question for them. So that, and this is right now, yeah, right now fine. at this point, it's the time to ask this question because of things like you've been asking about Mesa or Manpower, for example. Uh, yeah, it's to, the right to, time to, to ask some it. Ex- to some extent, I could let the story rest with the end in fire. There would be unanswered questions. Okay, including a huge one about what is the how does how does how does Darius eventually reintegrate? How does this all come down? David pitchforks and torches. Yeah, I know, I know. Well, okay, but but Raul, I'm I'm seventy one. Okay, and I got to kind of prioritize here. Don't don't you, George Martin? Us? (laughs) Yeah, I'm not. Hey, (laughs) don't don't go there. Don't go there. Okay, you know, red wedding. What a piker. Although although I you know. I've never just decided to kill everybody in sight off because I was tired of them. Um, you know, if but you if thought about got, it, didn't you? No, never really. <laughs> you know, if your character, if you got that tired of your characters, it's your fault. Yeah. No, as, that's, as, that's as the writer. Okay. Um, and, and killing, killing characters for the sake of killing characters. Although I will say, I will say that in uncompromising honor, I definitely approached George levels of, of carnage of beloved characters. Raul knows what I'm talking about. It's also, I will say this, uncompromising honor is the one where you will come closest to seeing honor Harrington out of control. Hmm. Um, 
yeah, the scary thing about Honor Harrington is It's one Harrington of the few times I wanted to out... throw a book, physically throw a I book. Think I, want, it, I think you're making me afraid. Well, the, 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 thing, the scary thing about Honor Harrington is that when she's out of control, she's more in control than ever. She just doesn't care anymore. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I finally I spoke your name. <laughs> I finally pushed her to that point. A whole lot of very strong four letter explicatives. This in well, that there's book. hints. I've, there's but hints that's of exactly this what you wanted. That we've that's already the read. response you wanted, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, that yeah. Honor has said, I think, in the books you've already read, she's commented on the fact that under the wrong circumstances, she could have been a monster. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. and there's been open statements about her temper, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we've watched yeah. her react, yeah. But she's never, she's never been, she's never the closest she came to being an actual uncontrolled missile in what you've seen was the commander of Blackbird, okay? Because she shot him without a trial, she just missed, okay. And the thing that is kind of irritating to me sometimes is that all honors too perfect. She never makes mistakes. She never does this. She never does the other. I'm like. Excuse I, I've me? never understood okay. that. That actually was one what of the book, questions. What I've... books are they reading? Well, those well, people? no, the, the, no. Okay, the main reason that I think they have this problem is they don't understand that intelligent people make intelligent, competent mistakes. Yeah. Okay, and otherwise, you you know, they they're just you're just that. Well, okay, they made a mistake. Well, why did they make the mistake? Be- because they made the mistake. Okay, no, no. Why did they make the mistake? They're human. The other one is that when Honor gets ready to shoot that guy. Reader isn't saying, you know what? He hasn't had a trial yet. They're saying, you go, girl, mm-hmm. because they agree with her. They're inside her head enough that they absolutely agree with her decision to kill this guy, even though it would have ended her career and rightly right there on the spot. Okay. Smacking Reginald Hausman is one thing. Okay. But shooting a prisoner in cold blood without a trial, no matter how guilty he was. You know, if it's not a battlefield necessity, it's an act of murder and you have to be held accountable for it. And she has a very special relationship with Scotty Tremaine, although she and Scotty never once discuss what happened. But both of them know they don't need to. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, You know, and and uh, Scotty and Rafe Cardones are the two characters from Basilisk who are. Well, no, Mercedes, who are are most in her inner circle all the way through for a lot of reasons. And I'm very fond of of both of them. And what's funny Um, is so much of what Scotty does is away from her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but but, okay, uh, in Honor Among Enemies, okay, they're Mm -hmm. back together again. Uh, And then when he eventually, like, gets his own ship and, you know, and by the way, I thought long and hard about the name of the ship that I gave him, Ravel, <laughs> and it was inevitable. He had to have that ship. Think about the name, okay? There was no way I could have put him on another one. But the um, that's part of it. <sighs> the big thing, the, one, one of the remarkable things about Honor Harrington, and um, Cortez mm-hmm. recognizes this, he actually tells her at one point, I don't remember whether it's happened in the book yet. He says, but I've run it. He says, I've run an analysis of the performance of officers before and after they serve under you. Okay. And there's a difference. Yep. All right. People don't realize that Honor Harrington doesn't achieve all that she achieves by her own efforts. She achieves what she achieves by motivating other people to achieve them for her and with her. Okay. She leads 
and they turn into extraordinary people because they are following an extraordinary leader. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I think that's one thing that a lot of people have missed, but that is the magic chemistry that the star captains have. I'd like to to think that that for every person that misses that, which is not a criticism, there is another person who sees it for the first time. There's a whole lot of people that learn, I think. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, and it's, it's, ah, I've spent what, 25 years with this universe. Okay. And I'm still adding to it. There are still things opening up. Now you asked about research and whatnot. Okay, BU9, which is uh, a group of my readers mm-hmm. who came together and set themselves up as Bureau 9, because there were eight bureaus in the TRMN, are basically, they're the ones who did uh, the companion House of Steel with me. And Tom Pope, who is sort of the keeper of the of the archives, okay, is an active collaborator with me and Tim Zahn will be an active collaborator in the Saganami Island series that I mentioned to you guys ah. earlier and is really pivotal to a lot of where the, uh, the honorverse has gone. Okay. I mean, if I can't remember something, I say, you know, what Mark missile launcher did we put in the so-and-so and he does, it. I'll tell you what he's doing right this minute. And, and I, this is, I think I can tell you. He is doing a design history of the Star Knight class heavy cruiser, complete with technical drawings and deck plans and everything else. And Bane will be releasing it when he gets it done. Oh, it's going to be great. Okay. That's it's the it's it's how the design evolved, how the weapons mix caused them to go where they go and where they went after on the basis of later war experience, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I am really, I've, he shared some of his, some of his illustrations for it with me uh, already. I'm really, really looking forward fun. to it. And I have Honor to say, Harrington technical I have manual. to say, I'm already yeah, I'm yeah. setting some schmeckles aside right now for that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, so not only not only is Tim um uh pivotal in a lot of ways for the development of the books, but he's also a very dear friend. Um and it's a joy to to work with him. But you know, and he doesn't he is it's kind of like in the in the uh books with Tim's on. One of the reasons that I got Tim involved in writing those books and poor Tim has had to put up with me and Tom for a long time is that I loved Tim's writing. He'd already done a story in one of the anthologies that gave a perfect hook into, into these books. I wanted them to have a different feel from the ones that I had written set in honors time because they're happening three, 400 years earlier. I also needed the technology to be three or 400 years cruder than that available in the honorverse and so i told tom and i told tom to do the to do the tech okay and tom is also kind of the first reader uh on on plot ideas from tim and whatnot and i basically do the combat sequences in those books and tim does the rest of it because i want it to have and i'm very very pleased with how they've come out Okay. Okay. i gotta ask you how are you on time i i know you've got an early day and i don't want to hold you i've got i got maybe another 20 minutes not, not that it's a not that it's a hook to guilt you into another one of these but we have more th- we have more than another question or two so 
when we're at a point that it's best for you much more than best for us, um, we can we can do a graceful. We are always and... at your convenience. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Well, well, I think I think uh, actually the point. The okay, and I do have a surprise question. To I close. can probably okay, but <laughs> what I was going to say is, uh, you guys need to, uh, and probably with Raul because he's read all the books, be looking for a cusp point. Okay, yep. where I can come back and talk, and yep. we can do some spoiler stuff that's right. not there's spoilers. Another, there's you know? another chunk that we can cover. Yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah, and and my schedule is both more and less flexible. We've got some stuff going on here that you guys probably, know, Raul at least, knows about that are really cutting into my my writing time right now, and I am bottlenecking three or four other people, and it's. I won't say it's my fault, but it's my responsibility yeah. to to get it fixed. And that, by the way, is really the core of Honor Harrington's entire personality mm-hmm. responsibility. Yeah. Okay, and consequences. Um, That's one of the things I so, liked yeah. about your books. The as my my two favorite science fiction works are uh, mm-hmm. okay. Two of my most favorite science fiction works, and this for the same reason is the Honor Harrington saga mm-hmm. and Babylon Five. Yeah. for so much yeah, of the I same see, reasons. I could see that. Yeah, there's a lot of similarity. You know, people, at one point, Claudia Christian was suggested to play Honor Harrington in a movie. Hmm. Okay, now aside from the fact that Claudia is not tall enough, but <laughs> where am I going to find a six foot two inch Eurasian martial artist? Okay, <laughs> right. I mean, let's face it, you know, kind of thing. My only real concern yeah, was that she, well, that, well, she owned Susan Ivanova yes. so completely. People won't that disconnect I, from that one. That Well, they may not. Uh, what I was afraid of is that the screenwriter couldn't disconnect mm-hmm. from it. Oh, that's, but there is yeah, a character yeah. in Babylon 5 who comes very close to having Honor's personality. And her name is yep. Delin. Mm-hmm. You know, my favorite episode of, of B5 is the one I think of as Delin kicks ass. <laughs> Okay, first she goes home and breaks the Great Council, <laughs> and then she comes back and they say, don't make us fire on you. And she says, why, why not? not? The, yes. only human, the only human captain to defeat a Mimbari ship in battle is behind, behind me. me. You are in front of me. You know, kind you of value like, your I'm life, like, oh, yeah. somewhere else. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that that could be honor on that command deck, you know. Um, and Delenn was, in many ways, my favorite character. Uh, I mean, there were so many good ones. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I really, really wish that he hadn't been rushed in that final season. I will say the yeah. one thing about B5 that pissed me off was that it ended with, well, if you'll go with us, we'll leave. After the investment that everybody had made in, in preparing for this battle, it was like, that's it? That's Now, I understand that from his perspective, the, 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 the aftermath of the right. war. And he with, didn't know if he was going to have a fifth season at that point. I know, I know, I know, I know. And then he found out that he was, and he'd already wrapped it up. So I, I, my feeling is that's why we got the Psy Wars element thrown into it to the extent that we did. Well, maybe a little less. And it just felt, nice. it just felt rushed. It just felt rushed. It's kind of like the difference between that and the series Person of Interest. I don't know mm-hmm. if you guys watched it. They had one season where they kind of lost their way, but they knew with their, that they were on their final season and they nailed it. They absolutely nailed it in that in that final season. It was, I thought, a remarkable job, as opposed 
to the final season of Supernatural, which we won't talk about because I'm not supposed to use that language uh, <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, I will say, I will say that my 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 unscrupulous wife, okay, made a deal with me. She agreed to watch all of Person of Interest if I would watch all of Supernatural. Hmm. Okay, I had no idea how many seasons of Supernatural there were when she offered this one-time only deal. Uh, <laughs> Terms and know. conditions apply. Not as many yes, as Stargate. Yes, yes, that, no, that's true. Well, and she loved Stargate. Yeah, Jim, see? You need to watch oh. Stargate, Jim. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, except for the NACWA enhanced C4. I never really understood how that worked, okay? But apparently, if you enhance the C4 with NACWA, you can blow up an entire starship with it. It's really good stuff, you know, kind of thing. But yeah, one of the things, one of the things about writing, especially, I think, military science fiction, any any science fiction, but especially military science fiction, is you need to be aware of the logical implications of your technology. Okay, Mm -hmm. you need to and and you can't just produce a God weapon when you need it. Okay, in in Mutineer's Moon, I set up the mousetrap that that Colin uses in the second book in the opening segments of that book when they're reflecting that if Dahak had gone sublight a little further in, he might have caused the star to go nova. And then I just didn't do anything at all with it until he had to destroy a million and a half starships by sucking them in and causing a star to go nova. Mm -hmm. Okay, you can do that. Okay, but you can't just suddenly say, you know what, I just figured out. I could cause this star to go Nova. Okay, you have to give the reader that, 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 you know. But the, um, the other thing is, okay, probably the classic example of, boy, the technology gave us a problem. The, uh, Star Trek and the transporter. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, we're going to go with the transporter so we don't have to do the special effects for all the shuttles and whatnot, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, and now we have to break the transporter in every single episode because otherwise it would solve our problem. Remember remember the Borg cube closing Mm -hmm. in on Earth at Next Generation? Okay, I was so pissed. All right, the Borg cube is going to destroy Earth. I realize they want to get Picard back, but at this point it's kind of like, you know what, John Luke, we're going to miss you. Okay, kind of thing to stop the cube. All right. All right. So they're they got this boarding parties, they're beaming in and out, and the Borg personal shields are resetting and they're pulling them out again. I would love to have seen their shields reset against about 15 pounds of antimatter beamed in from the warp nestles. Okay, boom, into problem. Okay. And nobody even said, Well, there's a reason we can't do it because. And I'm sitting there going, What? The two things about it that pissed me off were that and and Riker saying, no, no, I'm not ready to be a captain yet. Mm. And yeah. somebody yeah. not saying to him, well, you know what? You're probably the best judge of your capabilities. And if you're not ready to be a captain, then you're probably right. And there's this refuse disposal station on Ganymede <laughs> that's a captain's <laughs> billet, and it's yours for the rest of your career. Okay. We just lost 90% of Starfleet, and you're not going to sit down when we pull out the captain's chair. There was another solution, though. Okay, because John Luke's been borged, mm-hmm. right? All right, so he's the senior captain. He's going to become an admiral. But, you know, we can't really know what's going on there. So we make him an admiral, not a captain. We make Riker his flag captain in the Enterprise, and boom, problem solved. But this is what happens when people who do not have a freaking clue about the military write so-called. Tony Weisskopf differentiates between military fiction and militaristic fiction. 
And her definition is military science fiction is written by people who have a clue about how real militaries work. And militaristic science fiction is written by somebody who thought it would be really cool to write a novel that has a military component and they don't have a clue how the military works. And I have seen that so many times. And I um, wish our readers just... could see JP's vigorous <laughs> nodding. <laughs> I figured probably of all all the three of you, he would be the one to be going, oh, yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it. You know, it's kind of like my copy editor, my copy editor fixed one of my books and I never noticed. And he had somebody, she had somebody saluting a sergeant. Okay. And so I'm like, da, 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 da. And somebody said, you know, David, you know, you don't salute sergeants. And I said, well, of course you don't. I know that, you know, and then I went back and looked and, oh, yes, we have a sergeant being saluted. And I was like, Okay. Well, they do things differently in that military. The thing, one of the things that's interesting to me is the number. I was actually told by somebody that I couldn't do something that the Royal Manticore and Navy had done because the British Navy didn't do it that way. Oh, and I okay. said, "It's mine. It's my Navy. It's I can do what I want with it." And the other thing is, if you look at it, there's actually more of the U.S. Navy's DNA mm-hmm. in in how they're organized. I mean, there are there are Britishism, British. Britishisms that have have crept in, but you know it's really it's a lot more organized on 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 a USN basis than on an uh, an RN basis. That, it's like that yeah. just helps though not telling a single story out of U.S. history or or world history, right? Oh, you thought these guys were the French? Well, they're not. You thought this was <laughs> yeah. Know, that's there's true. there's little bits and pieces of all sorts of things woven into. Things like well, you know, how the navy is structured, or when, when when I when I build a world, okay, I take a lot of bricks from history, but I build them into a completely different structure, mm-hmm. okay, and then I begin from there. So it's it's a real mistake to look at one of my books and say, well, this is an analog for this is an analog for, because I'm not going for an analog of. I'm not writing allegory. Uh, you know, I'm 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 right telling a story and there are certain certain aspects of human nature of politics of the ebb and flow of warfare and the economics and the logistics that support it that i'm taking from history but they're flowing through different tributaries to 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 where that to where they wind up um and there are some people that that just drives crazy because they want to be able to know what's coming next, okay? Like, you guys haven't really met the Andermani a lot yet, but think think Asian Prussians, mm-hmm. yeah. okay? <laughs> Chin, Chin Lu von Rabenstrang, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of names like that. Like, I feel around. like we're on the cusp of more of those guys. Yes, so. you are. Oh, yes, you will see more of them. You will see more. Although, I will say that honor not dying means that the Andermani got a lot less screen time in the mainstream novels than they would have otherwise. But we kind you of make, make up, up for that. that some in, send it, though. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot more interaction. Uh, you'll, you'll discover, and Raul, I don't know if you've noticed uh, that the, um, a certain character from um, Shadow Saganami is, is married. Okay. To a, a redheaded character. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. That character is a direct descendant of Travis Long and Chomps. And that's why the family yacht is named the Kaiser's Gift. 
I could see the little wheel. All the gears are turning. And I can't say, you are, David Weber, a very evil person because I can't say a damn thing. No, you can't, can you? I phrased that very carefully. You, you locked him up. With it. Was... Yeah. Hey, if I can't be dropping spoilers, <laughs> guess what? <laughs> yeah, but that's that's who she is. Um, and, uh, you know, and a lot of people, you know, there are actually quite a few little Easter eggs like that buried in these books. And I'm not even going to yeah, tell you know, people you just where most created of them a are, massive you know? fangasm of everyone who listens to this episode. Yes, 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 yes. Dang yes. it, I have to go back and read that one now. You know, <laughs> again. Yeah, yeah, well, hopefully they lost it. They'll have to buy a new one. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I got two daughters in college, man. You know, <laughs> although, although, uh, uh, JP, um, I, I told you that Michael is uh, is a Marine mm-hmm. in Jerusalem. Um, our his older sister Megan, one of one of our adoptive daughters. Yay on the um, just just finished just finished um, her uh, advanced training at Fort Jackson uh, for the National Guard. Awesome, and she is seriously considering the possibility of going career. Uh, she really, she really enjoyed it. Now she's in HR, so, you know, she's not in one of the, one of the combat arms, but, um, and I think, you know, I, I, I did not expect it, but then on the other hand, I didn't expect our son to come in and say, you guys have to come talk to the recruiter. What recruiter? The Marine recruiter. (laughs) Excuse me. Yeah. I'm only 17. I've talked to twice. You got to come and talk to him now. We're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Where did this guy, we don't have a problem with it, you know, but he said, well, he said my last Well, he he said my last two years of high school were all virtual. I didn't learn a damn thing. Um, And uh, and uh, so he'd been accepted to uh, University of Tennessee. He wanted to go into law enforcement. He was looking at their law school. He said, yeah, I didn't learn a damn thing. None of us did. They just passed us anyway. He said, so I'll start out two years behind when I hit college. Um, And knowing me, I'll party instead of studying. He said, uh, if I, if I go ahead, sign up now, agree to the longer hitch, uh, I can get the MOS I want, which is going to be the embassy security group, which would look, mm. be very useful to me if I want to go into law enforcement. Uh, he said, I get the GI bill when, I, you know, the, ben- the educational benefits sure. when I come out, you've already got the girls in college. You don't need, you know, and I'm like, where is my son? And what did you do with him? Okay. I mean, I was so proud of him when he had. And he'd done all that. And I'll tell you something. My uh, profile picture on Facebook uh-huh. now, it's a picture of me hugging him on the parade deck at Paris Island. Aha. Uh-huh. And it is the first picture ever with my head down on his shoulder. Wow. Okay. I mean, I am incredibly proud of that boy. Now, he has pretty much, I think, decided he's not going to re-up. Um, you know, he's, you know, the thing is, he's, he's Jerusalem got a now. plan. Well, he's in Jerusalem now. He's in Jerusalem now. His next embassy post is probably going to be Turkey, you know, and it's like, okay, you know, and then he's got, um, 18 months, I think with the fleet to finish out his, uh, his enlistment. And then of course they'll be waving money at him and saying, please, please, please don't go. Um, but what I hadn't realized is that, uh, the state department's internal security types, overwhelmingly ex-marines well i'm sorry former marines uh former embassy marines because they already know all the ropes they've already been cleared you know kind of thing it makes perfectly good sense but he'll do well at whatever he does but i am really really proud of both of them of course morgan the other girl her question is how many times did you drop them on their heads when they were younger (laughs) you know 
She, she's the psychology major. Okay. Uh, and she, she knew what she wanted to do from the time she was 12. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm proud of all three like of them. Like her historian father. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I will say, you know, I, I wish sometimes, you know how you have that, that road not taken thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I was good in the classroom. I really, really was. And that's, you know, yeah. And I don't think I'd be a good fit on most campuses these days. But then on the other hand, I'd be the guy with tenure they couldn't get rid of, you know, kind of thing. But I had one of the greatest compliments I was ever paid as a teacher. I had one of my students come by my office before the final. She wanted to discuss the final, you know. And and this is why I think I wouldn't be a good fit on a lot of campuses these days. And after she was done, she said, can I ask you a question without making you mad? And I said, well, I can't really answer that till I hear the question, you know, but ask away. And she said, do you believe in anything? And I said, of course I do. Why? And she said, because I spent all semester trying to figure out what you believe and I can't. <laughs> I said, that's the way awesome. it's supposed uh-huh. to be. Yeah. Okay. It's not about and she me. Was, right. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm supposed to give you this you know, these perspectives, and then you're supposed to determine what you believe. Um, and I don't think they do that too much anymore. That, David, I can actually okay. can answer that because my son is 19 heading on 20 in September. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we homeschooled up until high school. And a focus of our homeschooling was teaching him how to think, never what yeah. to think. Yeah. And he's well, walked away. He, he's putting college on hold at this point. Because yeah. he's realized that it's not going to help him do what he wants to do. In fact, yeah. it's hindering him. And well, it's not like there was ever a credential for what I do. Mm-hmm. Well, he's wanted to go into. Okay, he's, wanted to not... be, he's going to be a professional golf a golf professional. Okay, and he's okay. at the point but where they, he's ready they're... for the tour. Wait, but I, I'll tell you something else too. Okay, we're wandering well afield oh, yeah. from Honor well, that's Harrington okay. here. But what? But what a one of the things that really irritates me about public education, the way that it's organized now, is the fact that, you know, oh, no, no, you have to get your college degree. You have to get your college degree. You have to get your college degree. I've known people who, okay, what you really need is a good trade school because you love working on cars. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's what you need. And the, these guys are good enough that they would work for someone else for five years, then they would open their own garage and they would wind up employing 15 guys being top flight. Okay. But instead they're being pressured to go to college to get a degree that they'll never use. And the same thing with the military. I mean, my God, the options available to you in the military, especially if you're coming from like a low income background. Okay. The doors that can be open to you. Uh, the, 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 the training you get, the experience you get, the schools that you get, the way that your resume looks to employers when you come out, this guy, this guy had four years in and, you know, here's his efficiency ratings and everything. I can work with this, you know, plus the educational benefits. Okay. And counselors don't say, you know what, maybe you should consider the military. All right. And I think that's because frequently it's because the counselors don't know squat about the military. Mm Mm-hmm. They don't have a yeah. clue what 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 is out there. I I read an article not too long ago that said that like like ninety percent of the U.S. military comes from ten percent of U.S. families, the the like the traditional military families and people who know them. And I think that that is very possibly an accurate statistic. Um, the number of people who it would never even occur to to go into the military 
versus the number of people where, yes, my uncle was in, my cousin was in. I know more about what the military can do and what it is and isn't, you know, kind of thing. But I, I digress. But it's a good digression. I do that a lot. Believe me, for people reading these books, understanding you this way, you, you can't, I, I, you, I don't think you imagine how well it helps us understand the characters. Well, I will tell you NavyCon. Okay, if you go and look for it online, NavyCon. Okay, at the end of NavyCon, I have all these midshipmen at the academy, and they're asking me if I have to go into combat, how do I handle killing somebody else? And I'm like, (laughs) and I gave them the best answer that I could. Okay, and I felt a little out of place doing that. Because my knowledge of where they're going and what they're going to be looking at is acquired through other people or through what I've read and through the history that I've researched. It's not my personal experience that I'm speaking to them from. And it occurred to me later, after I, you know, after that, that, uh, that mini convention, it occurred to me, you know, that's true of most teachers when you come down to it. Okay, they've studied it, they've learned about it, but how many of them have actually lived what it is they're teaching you about? And I think good teachers have to be aware of that. The other thing that good teachers have to be aware of is I am not a big fan of Disney movies. And one of the reasons is Pocahontas. (laughs) Okay. Because Disney's position on that, well, it's just a charming story. We can do whatever we want with it. My position is, listen, you freaking idiots. This is someone who actually lived. It's a historical situation that actually lived. We've got the 1619 Project coming in here with a lot of really bad history in it. Okay. And this is going to be part of it. And they're like, nobody. Would. I'm like, do you have any idea? I was a, I was a history teacher. Do you have any idea how hard it is to blast that image out of the brain? Mm-hmm of a student so that they can learn what really happened, that the 12 year old Pocahontas was turning naked cartwheels down the streets of Jamestown, that she was not a tree hugger, that her father was not the benign warrior. He was running an empire where he'd conquered all the tribes around him, you know, all this stuff. That's what really happened. Okay. And trying to teach that to someone when they have ingested this, whatever. Okay. And Pocahontas is just the most blatant example of it, all right? It's kind of like, it's not a good idea for me to go see a lot of, uh, like, war movies in the theater. It's much better if I do it at home where nobody's going to be upset when I start, what the, you know, kind of thing, you know? Sharon, Sharon will, 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 will be sitting next to me, and she will, I'll, Start and she'll put a hand on my knee, and I'll sit back and say, Okay, I won't say a word. You know? oh, <laughs> steady, steady. Yes, yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. You know, but it's just we all have our, our little crosses to bear. And mine is the fact that I'm living in a historically illiterate country when my deepest love is history. And, and I really, really, really understand Cassandra. Mm-hmm. Okay. I really understand her. Oh, okay. I gotta tell you, don't give up hope. I well, I, I was reading. I was re- I was reading C.S. Forster to my son to bed to 
Rather, yeah. rather than reading uh, David Weber to my son to go to sleep, I was reading Forrest. Hi, 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 hi. Okay. Oh, all right. You're reading that Forrest. He, he guy. was the inferior stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The stage setter. But he was eight years old when he first yeah. read uh, Lewis and Clark's letters for okay. fun. That's good. That's good. That's there's good. hope. Yeah, but see, you were but you were homeschooling too. Well, yeah. Okay. Our kids, our kids were in a private school, small private. Uh, school associated with the Presbyterian Church here. Uh, Michael did his last uh, last two years um, in in one of the public schools, and I think that to some extent we were insulated by by some of that. We were in high school too because he went to uh, yeah. a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod High School. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, the best you can do is the best you can mm-hmm. do. Okay, um, but it's. Um, John W. John John W. Campbell, his take on history, you know, studying history and history repeating herself. This is not a direct quote. This is a paraphrase because I can't remember the direct quote. But it was basically history repeats herself and repeats herself until finally she lashes out with a club and says, "Now will you learn?" <laughs> nice. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Yes. Uh, I'm All looking right. at the well, clock. And I want to wrap it up. Yeah. Well, I'll bring us back in. Um, this is probably yeah. a spoilery question, but this is one exception where you are allowed to spoil. I'm allowed to spoil. You are okay. allowed to spoil. Will yeah. we ever see Michelle Henke and Lester Torville go on a date? <laughs> it could happen. <laughs> uh, although, to be honest, to be honest, the person that she's most likely to wind up with, um, and it would really be yeah she and lester you know uh, but 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 i'm thinking i'm thinking the one that would really raise the 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 uh eyebrows uh is is her and overstate <laughs> <laughs> those two guys yeah jim's throwing up his hands huh <laughs> the heart attacks the heart attacks would come hard and fast in landing. <laughs> yeah. It would it, that what would be that would be Although, fun. It would be fun. It would be funny. But those two, the, Lester, yeah. the, the she and Lester are peas in a pod. Yeah, they, they are. Well, and I have to say that um, one of my favorite. Um, this has nothing to do with Lester and and Michelle. One of my favorite short stories that I've written uh, is First Victory, which you've mm-hmm. undoubtedly read. Because of the insight it gives into where honors parenting comes from, if you follow me. Um, but there's a, there's a couple of stories in there that that need to be told. Uh, that was one of them. Uh, like I said, you know, eventually I have to tell the story of Clematis and and that whole side of Alfred. Yeah. You know. Okay, you guys don't know this yet. Okay, honor is not the most dangerous Harrington. Nope. Her father is. Her father is. That's the, the, the big, big, that's tr- been the big teddy bear, the tree, you know, that she's under, the gentle guy, the whole nine yards. Never, ever, ever get on Alfred Harrington's bad we, side. We, you've been that's giving hints all, about all that for tell a you. long time. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, see, a lot of people are like, I like, you know, and, and the scene where he, he breaks in uh, Echoes of Honor. Okay. That's very much a part mm-hmm. of him too, when when honor has been executed, and it's he needs Allison, 
he needs Allison then more than he's ever needed her before. But one thing that will happen when you read Beauty and the Beast, um, which is not for a while. It's, yeah, it's a yet. few anthologies um, down. It's in like the next to last <laughs> anthology, you know. You will find out that let's just put it this way. Um Alfred and Allison share a very special bond besides being Honor's parents. I would love to see a spin-off okay. series just on in, in in a lot of just ways. Just on those two. Alfred and Ali have uh, a well, spin-off series. Like I say, at 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 some point I need to write the the novel, which is Alfred prior to his med school. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. Well, it's here, already been mentioned. Know. He was a Marine. Yes. Well, this would be Yes, yes, this would be that why story. you don't want to get on mm-hmm. his wrong side. Okay, let's put it this way, guys. Um, one of the reasons that Alfred Harrington is a doctor is that he's seen the monster inside him, and he's afraid. Mm-hmm. Not that what he did didn't need doing, but that he was too good at it, if you see what I'm saying. And I think that's a big part of honor's grounding is, you know, that that kind of thing explains uh, you'll so also find the out that there between is between those two yeah now I, okay talk about things that i planted that you didn't get until later okay there's a line in um the short victorious war that i just tucked in there okay and it's where um honor is washing down peach cobbler with chocolate <laughs> hot chocolate with cocoa and Hinky says, if I ate like that, I'd look like a pre-space blimp. And Andre says, nonsense. Some of us are blessed with an active metabolism. <laughs> okay. I hadn't told you about the Meyer doll mods or anything else at that point. You know, I just dropped that in there. I just kept right on going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? oh, God. But it was like, yeah. And trust me, Allison gives both her daughter and her husband grief over their metabolisms. It's just, it's, it's an, it's an ongoing, ongoing joke. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, and when Honor finally has a child who has the Meyer doll mods, she really sympathizes with her mother more than she ever did <laughs> before. <laughs> How do you keep somebody with this bed? Isn't isn't that the uh, the prayer or the wish or whatever of parents all around the world? Right, someday, yeah. Yeah. Well, daughter, some, someday, son, you're going to understand. You have a kid just like I, you. <clears throat> well, I think um, that uh, you guys have probably gotten to the point. Where Honor, I think it's either Honor or Allison, is thinking about the the Grayson uh, the 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 Grayson prayer uh, or or poem that uh, is um, uh, not flesh of my flesh or bone of my own bone of my bone, but still mysteriously my own. Never forget for a single minute you didn't grow under my heart, just in it. That is the adoption poem. Um, and it is very much part of Sharon and my life and our experience. And that's one reason why it's, why it's incorporated there. And I will tell that's you that I was flying told. through. Yeah. Well, I was flying, well, it, I was flying through O'Hare, uh, while we were still fighting with the INS, which took us over a year, uh, to get the girls home. And there was a couple there of older ladies who probably these days I would not think of as older ladies uh, who were sitting there. And this young mother came through and she had about five kids and there were like every possible ethnicity, you know, kind mm-hmm. of thing. And so she was, they came, they, she was sitting near them and they talked and she, she was an adoptive mom. They were all adopted children. 
And so she went on her way and these two ladies are sitting there and one of them says, well, I think it's just wonderful she did. But, you know, you can never feel about an adopted child the way you would about one of your own. Bull crap. Okay. I've, I've done both. Okay. And there is zero difference. And that's one of the things that I wanted to break, bake into the Graysons, even though the Graysons had been created well before Sharon and I adopted. It was something that I already knew that I that I wanted to to bake in. Um, and uh, yeah, <laughs> now you guys are you far enough along in War of Honor that you've met Emily yet? I don't think so. I don't. No. I know Jim oh, isn't. I don't know about JP. You'll like Emily when you She's meet a great her. Character. Um, I think you'll especially like her last line in the book. <laughs> read faster, read faster. Yeah. But yeah. I well guys, it, it has, has been, been a bunch of fun. Um yeah, I for need us too. Yeah. I I promised Sharon that I would try to get eight hours of sleep before I get up for my appointment in the morning, which means that I need to turn in sometime in the next 30, 40 wow. minutes. Uh so um, like I say, you know, you guys need to think about when would be a good time, uh, to do this again. Um, and, uh, if you give me, you know, a week or two of, no, of warning, I can almost certainly find a place to, to slot it in. I think you can um, count on us taking you up on that offer. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and, and next time you'll know that if you wind me up, you'll never get me to shut up again. <laughs> <laughs> Like did, I say, yeah. Or, it's did like, you hear us complaining mm -hmm. or what? I was going to say, well, have, you, have, yeah, you heard, but have you heard uh, <laughs> I, myself or JP or Jim carrying on? Well, so. I, I don't think I left you enough space to complain oh. in. You know, yeah. <laughs> well, there, were, there would be no complaining. Uh, well, it says me who somebody wrote in and described as, Jim, what did that person say? I'm the uh, little Marie the explainer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, you know, one of the things that was yeah, I, took you that guys a, should, I took that in a good way, by yeah. the way. I was flattered. Yeah. Anticipate seeing a well, character I, named Murray showing up and getting blown up uh ra rather gruesomely. <laughs> no, 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 no. I would I would not <laughs> do that. Might be a micrometeor strike. You know? but anyway. Now um one of the things that I've really been sort of tickled by is the fact that I went to some lengths uh to bake dime um into the mix. Yeah. And and having people say, "Oh, look, look, here it is," I mm -hmm. you know, kind of thing to me. That's, but I got to say this: I don't, I can't conceive of a way that you could write a story about a war this big over so much time without it has to be there baking that in. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why some stories fail. Okay, now there are yeah. some problems with the logistics in in the universe. The biggest problem being that the technology which is supporting them is not 2000 years better. Okay. And that unfortunately was part of there. Were, now that's a discussion. We're again, bearing have, in mind when I, that's a discussion we definitely have to have in the future too, though, because yeah. of some, of the well, bearing, coming. yeah, well, bearing in mind when I started, uh, the series. Okay. I mean, cell phones weren't a thing. Um, and, uh, the thing that has surprised me a little bit is the degree to which it's been possible to integrate more stuff into the series, because I did, you know, I, I had opened the door for a lot of what later turned up. It's kind of interesting when you look back over the history of science fiction to see what any given period of it missed. Mm -hmm. 
like if you're looking at the science fiction of the 40s and the 50s, okay, uh, the big thing that they missed was computers. Okay, they didn't have a clue, and even into the 60s. I mean, if Doc Smith's guys gadding about the galaxy with slide rules, okay, that they didn't see printed circuits coming. They didn't see, you know, it just it didn't occur. I think that the thing that we missed in the 90s more than anything else, and it's one of the reasons why I built Mesa the way that I built it, was I think we missed a lot of where biologicals were going to go in, in that time frame. Uh, now, one thing I will say, there's there are two reasons that you don't see sentient AI in the honorverse. Well, there are three, actually. The, the Stylistically, it's because I had just done two novels, um, well, actually, two, two series, one of which was a single novel, The Apocalypse Troll and The Dahok series, in which you had neural implants, mm-hmm. you had fully aware, self-aware computers, you, you know, et cetera. And I wanted to not get into the trap of doing everything the same. Okay. Another was that I am one of the people who don't believe that um, sentient AI is going to be anywhere near as easy to build as people blithely assumed for a long time. And it may never be possible at all. In fact, the, 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 the positive of the honorverse is that it's not. Good. Okay. Thank you. And the, I actually but, work in areas that directly involve this field. I can just say, thank well, you. You got it. You're on the money. Well, but but the honorverse is lousy with ai you think you fly a starship with a joystick no, no, without no. a lot of ai exactly. support <laughs> okay okay but the thing is that it's so much a part of their universe they think about it about as much as we think about the power plant on the other side of the light switch when we turn it on or off it's just there um i think that there's going to be a lot of brilliant software in the universe and you see more of it in some of the later books like when indy is is you know taking his air cab to the restaurant mm-hmm. you guys don't know who i'm talking about uh and and uh, the and the the air car is interacting with him and you know refining by asking questions and whatnot um and i think probably if we don't all go insane uh, we're going to have to wind up with algorithms that are more value neutral yep. than the ones that a lot of people are writing now. But, you know, like I say, you know, I just decided that the universe was not going to have fully aware artificial intelligence. Uh, Raul, you probably, I don't know, have you read um, much James Hogan, James P. Hogan, The Giants of Ganymede? Oh, that was um, not recent. That was like yeah, that long ago. No, that's not recent that's not at all. That's not recent at all. Okay, but yeah. No, it's not. But he was he was not, he was with IBM before he became a writer. I didn't know that. Uh did you read his did you read his I think it's Two Faces of Tomorrow? I don't think I've read that one. Well, they they have this problem that the that the software is getting more and more self-directing mm-hmm. without becoming fully intelligent. And for example, there's this survey crew on the moon and they're surveying the route for the new mag, you know, mag driver. And suddenly this, this meteor storm strikes and the practically almost wipes them out and it blasts this trough through the mountains. And it turns out that the AI running the, the current grab launcher is also knowing that they need to get through here. And so it's using the grav launcher to launch a Q strike to blow the way through to do it. And it just didn't bother to ask anybody because it was a logical thing to do. So they decide that they need to irritate an AI into a computer into becoming fully aware. Hmm. And it works. 
but the computer has no idea that these pests which infest the gizzards of the space station that it's in are human beings and sentient it just is trying to figure out how to get rid of them it's really an interesting book anyway you know you guys knows how to reach me dave yeah she she can can find find me Uh, she can't find you so i can get in almost as much trouble as you here yeah, well, but you're you, okay. You're out of reach of sharp, pointy objects. Okay, and I'm not. Sharon, well, Sharon has told me repeatedly, and it's true. David, you know I love you. You wake up every morning. <laughs> I, Jim, you have to edit that out because I, my wife will use that. My wife will borrow that line. Oh, All right, guys. Yeah. Well, I need to go. Thank you for having me over. And you guys undoubtedly have that. What time zones are you in? Are you Eastern? I am in Central. Who's time. Eastern? Oh, well, it's not Central anywhere near time. as late for you. Yeah. You Are you Eastern, Jim? No, Central time. Central. And I'm in JP? the Pacific. Oh, well, geez, you guys shouldn't be worried about staying up late. All right. Sir, uh, it was thank you. It's kind of old to have so. you. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you, David. And, and I will come back another time if you ask me. Okay. Count oh, on you it. Combat it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks. Bye bye. Bye bye. Good night. Bye bye. So there it is, folks. That's our show for the night. Thank you to David Weber. It was it was a lot of fun and a lot of information. And uh, it's really nice to get someone to talk to that you just ask a question and they talk and you don't have to yeah. worry. Yep. And that said, please send us uh, your thoughts, your comments, uh, follow up questions. He's he, he's made yeah. the offer to come back. Yep. You all heard it. Yep. So there it is. Well, um, mm-hmm. we we ought to make sure we thank Hank Davis as well. Well, of course. Oh yes, yes. Thank you, Hank, and the TPE Network. Well, say good night, JP. Good night, JP. Good night, everyone. So long. Bye bye. For listening to Honorverse today. We welcome your feedback. Email us at honorverse at tpenetwork.com. We are a proud part of TPE Network. Visit us on the web at honorverse.net, on social media, or tpenetwork.com. You can subscribe to Honorverse today by visiting tpenetwork.com slash subscribe. Visit TPE Network for the very best in podcasting. Opinions expressed in the show are solely those of the hosts. They do not reflect the opinions or views of Bain Books, the authors, or TPE Network. Visit Bain.com for the best in science fiction. Many of their books are available from the Bain Free Library found at their site. Theme music is Honor and Sword by Zakar Valaha. Check his website found in the show notes for all your podcasting music needs. <laughs>